VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Monday, February the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Pretty good weekend for the Growlers down at Mary Brown Center. So they took two or three over the Maine Mariners. Uh, their 32nd win of the season yesterday in the 44 games they've played. They're way out in front in the North Division and second only to Idaho for the ECHL lead. Uh, just three points back. Officiating, highly questionable. So there was very little being called, and consequently every whistle there was a scrum and all kinds of whacks and hacks behind the scenes. But anyway, the Growlers, they're flying. Congratulations to the swim clubs province-wide. Even in my wife's class, she has three competitive swimmers, and they've been talking about the upcoming Swim for Hope the entire year. And so this past weekend, they did indeed have the Swim for Hope. And the Legends coach, uh, Robbie, took his plunge from the 10-meter platform, much to the glee of the swimmers in attendance at the Aqua Arena. And get this, they raised over $120,000. I mean, extraordinary stuff. We've heard some of the stories lately, like Chris Weeks, the swimmer who has a faster time than Michael Phelps ever swam in one discipline. And, you know, Owen Daly down swimming in the NCAAs and many others. So $120,000. Wow. Congratulations to the swimmers and their supporters. All right, this is a cool one. It was on this date in 1971 that Alan Shepard became the first person to hit a golf ball on the moon. Everyone can picture that in their mind's eye, that iconic moving images of the golf ball being struck by astronaut Shepard. And it was today where King George VI died, and consequently, Elizabeth ascended to the throne today in 1953. No, 1953? 52. 52. The coronation of the Queen Elizabeth didn't take place until the 2nd of June in 1953, but she did indeed ascend to the throne after proclamations brought forward by the Privy and Executive Councils shortly after George VI's death. All right, this is a cute story. Might as well start with a little cute. So apparently we now have uh, on record at the Guinness World Book of Records the world's oldest dog. Life expectancy, we all know that when you have a dog, you know full well going into it that, you know, average lifespan, you know, depending on the breed, obviously, 10, 12, 14 years, which is a good long life for a dog. But this particular dog, Bobo, down in central Portugal, owned by a young fellow named Leonel Costa. So some of the stories are really quite severe. Apparently, the dogs were born, sometimes the puppies were born, and before they had a chance to open their eyes, Mr. Costa would bury them. But this little Bobo hid in a woodpile. He was found a few days later by young Lionel, Lionel, and he's now 30 years old. 30 years and 269 days as of the 4th of February. I think that makes him in human years, somewhere like 130-odd. But Bobo is 30 years old. They call it a miraculous story. So apparently he'd never been kept chained on a leash ever and always eats human food. <laughs> Bobo, happy birthday, buddy. All right, so obviously bitter cold weekend. Temperatures including wind chill down in the minus 30s, minus 35s. In Labrador, maybe as much as or as severe as minus 50. Big storm up in Labrador, some damage to some properties as well. So a couple of things involved with that. For starters, lots of people going around quite sore. I mean, I know the municipalities have to go ahead and plow the roads. Of course they do. 
But that slushy kind of snow plowed into your driveway just in front of the coldest day of the year made for some pretty awful shoveling experiences, certainly around here. I don't know what it was like where you were. But the provision of power. So there were some power outages over the weekend. You know, there was a couple out in southwestern Newfoundland, Conception Bay North. Newfoundland Power says that was severe weather as opposed to interruption of service and provision of power by Newfoundland Hydro. There was a record set apparently for peak demand, 730, 730 megawatts. They anticipated it might get up to 1770 around supper time as we all flicked on the oven and what have you. So that beat the previous uh, record set in February 2019 of 1720. Okay. So uh, I guess good news that people, most customers uh, had power throughout. And, of course, there was some power loss in Lab City as well. But let's see what, well, let's dig into this a little bit. So they say that they were able to have 450 megawatts flow over the Labrador Island link. Okay. There's some real optimistic, view, optimistic views coming from Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, and this is coming from uh, Mr. College, who's the head of operations there. Even though it's not commissioned and we're still working through the software, it has been working up to 450 megawatts. So today we have it right up to that limit and pushing power to us. They say that they have a big 700 megawatt test coming at the end of this month, but they're pretty optimistic with how they're talking about the Labrador Island Link. And we all know, even if you're not tech savvy or an engineer, the problems have been real and persistent, and it didn't look like we were anywhere close to having a final commission, but now Hydro kind of talking about it like they were really quite bullish on it. In addition to that, the obligations of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro to the people of the province have not been met with Muskrat Falls, but apparently we have been able to scrape together enough power to meet our obligations with the province of Nova Scotia, which I'm also surprised with. You know, up until now, they, we were only delivering about 110 gigawatt hours a month to Nova Scotia, as opposed to the average that we're supposed to deliver to them of 370 gigawatts a month from Muskrat Falls. So they've scraped up power from various sources, and we're hitting those obligations, which is good because we have a contractual obligation to Amera, Nova Scotia Power. So apparently the 450 has been met. We'll see if we can't... Uh, tease that out a little further. It'd be nice to have someone from Hydro, Mr. Collard in particular, to walk us through what has changed to see that be now the case. But there was a request for some conservation over the weekend. But, you know, you just think about it. And we've been talking about this a fair bit because it's a big issue. You know, it was one thing to be all tucked in pretty warm in my home, but knowing what we know about how many people are out there without a home to call their own or without even a safe spot to let rest their head, People are actually spent some of that weekend outdoors. I mean, it's remarkable when you th sit back and think about it. Just in the city alone, and that's the only place I have numbers for, for, but if you want to share what you see in your community, please do. On September the 29th of 2020, 71 people spent a night in shelters. Two years later, that number rose to 275, an increase of almost 300%. And we know that the gathering place has been forced, based on capacity, to turn away a couple of people a night, possibly. So... It is really extraordinary, a dire need out there. Now, it's great that the province is going to build an additional 30-bed shelter. Some are very likely in close proximity to downtown, where we see a lot of homelessness here in the city. But, you know, the story gets even a little bit more baffling and maddening when you hear that uh, Metrobus has decided that come the middle of this month, they'll be removing the shelter from right outside the gathering place. Many of the clients of the gathering place would use Metrobus to get to the gathering place, so just think about it. Step back and think about it. So a bus shelter is basically there so that you can be in out of the elements while you wait for the bus. 
But just imagine, the bus shelter has become an actual shelter, an emergency shelter for the most vulnerable. And so Metrobus is going to remove it. I guess there's probably been a lot of complaints from other bus riders and then possibly some mess and what have you has been left behind. There was a meeting some while back where the gathering place and their staff would be cleaning up and cleaning in side and outside the shelter. But now it's going away. But can you just imagine, this is how bad the issue is, that people needed to rely on a bus shelter for emergency shelter. Not just away for Route 2 or Route 5 or 10 or 12, but they needed that shelter simply to get in out of the elements. It's a remarkable story when you think about it in those terms. So they've gone ahead and made it. I think the councillor in the area, Ravencroft, quite uh, upset about it. So was the uh, member of parliament, Joanne Thompson, on the issue. So we'll see if we can't get down to a little further brass tacks on that particular issue. But imagine, people need that shelter? Not just waiting for the bus, but period. Really something else when you think about it on that front. And I don't think the story is yet to be fully told regarding 82-year-old disabled lady Shirley Cox and being evicted from Riverhead Towers. We don't even really know why. There's lots of surmising that's because she smokes in close proximity to the front door, can't get safely to the smoking area. But this has a lot of people completely outraged. There was an interesting opinion piece written over the weekend about this particular issue and what it means for seniors and other disabled people, period, province-wide, but certainly here in the city, and rightfully so. So now people are thinking, well, if it can happen to her, it can happen to me, and what their future holds or where I'm going to go if this does happen to me is really highly questionable. And then they go on, and the, uh, the writer of this piece talks about institutional housing and the further segregation of peoples with disabilities. And remember, inside the world of a medical assistance in dying, and we can and should be talking about that because it's not working the way it was intended, people find themselves hopeless and consequently looking to die with the aid of a doctor versus being terminally ill, uh, no hope in sight, intolerable pain. No, because some supports aren't in place, people are turning to it. Now, in June of 2021, the legislation regarding and recovering medical assistance in dying included, was expanded to include people with disabilities. So, the only country in the world that offers this type of care, assistance in dying, includes disabled. Canada is the only country that does it. So, it further ostracizes and segregates people with disabilities. It is not supposed to be a program for if you find yourself hopeless and find yourself possibly to be a burden on others, your friends or family, and you don't have the supports required. So no wonder this story has been extended beyond Shirley Cox and why the city kicked her out, wouldn't even tell her, no reason's been offered, and what the future holds for Ms. Cox and what that means for other seniors and disabled peoples who would be relying potentially on municipal housing and or provincial housing. So the story certainly has raised the ire of many. We're happy to take it on here today if you want to. And also when we extend the conversation regarding housing, the vacancy rates dropped way, way down here in this area, and I would suggest in many parts of the province. And then the consequential hike in uh, rental, the cost of renting. Here in the city, there was about a 9% vacancy rate some 18 months ago. And then up to today, it's around 3% or less. The housing market was pretty hot. Some people who maybe had rentals said, well, I'm going to cash out. So they sold. But you know full well that so many people who had a property, turn it into a accommodation property, possibly an Airbnb. In Bonavista, they've seen exactly that. So now the town council is going to put a freeze on offering permits for accommodations because people have nowhere to go. 
There's over 170 Airbnbs, or pardon me, 170 accommodation properties in Bonavista. 120 are Airbnbs. People are getting evicted. People are leaving. So whether the story regarding access to health care, and Mayor Norman out in Bonavista says maybe upwards of seven people have left his community because they don't have access to health care, but how many people are going to be forced on the same path if they don't have access to housing? So I know people see it as a generator of money. Fair enough. It's your property. You're the, put, you're the person who signed the mortgage and making the payments. But it does have a bigger implication community-wide. So in Bonavista, they're not going to offer any more permits for accommodations, whether it be for bed and breakfasts and or for Airbnbs to try to tackle the housing crunch. So they say, one of the quotes is, there's nothing around for seniors or anyone really. So I don't think that's going to be an uncommon approach uh, in communities where you see people unable to find a spot, but all these Airbnbs, and think about it. Some people might live in it for a little while during the year, have it up as a rental during the peak season, and then simply put these shutters down for the rest of the year while those people have nowhere to live. So that's what they're doing in Bonavista. And interestingly, we'll stick with Bonavista, is, you know, you wonder what the role of municipalities is now and will be in the future to join forces with the province and regional health authorities for the recruitment of healthcare professionals. In Bonavista, they haven't decided the amount yet, but the town is going to be offering a signing bonus to doctors, very likely. Then also the sale of service building lots for a dollar, and they're valued around $60,000. So not every municipality has a whole lot of levers they can pull. But you know full well, if this becomes a bigger part of the conversation, like the grand seduction on Bell Island, and like what they're doing in, uh, in Bonavista, and apparently the doctor moving into Fogo Island wasn't about incentives coming from either Fogo Island and or the government, simply decided to close her practice here, and that leaves 2,700 patients on that patient roster, now without a family doctor, to move to Fogo Island. No one, be, no one begrudges the folks on Fogo Island, a doctor, but all of these different things, it's, yes, the pressure should absolutely squarely be on the minister's office and the deputy minister's office. But I think the municipalities probably will play a bigger role in the future. And what that looks like, if you have any ideas for your community, what could be made available, let's talk about it. And on health care, the premiers have all now made their way to Ottawa and the upcoming meeting with the prime minister tomorrow. Now, Today, they meet just as a group of first ministers, but tomorrow they meet the prime minister, and it's basically going to be about health care transfer, isn't it? The provinces and territories are looking for an increase in the Canada health care transfer dollar to 35% from 22%. Okay, all fine. I mean, we know money makes the world go around, but there's a larger conversation about what money means in health care. Because if it was simply about money, we wouldn't have the problems that we have. We just wouldn't. Not because I say so, because the numbers are clear. Increase in health care spending has, doesn't reflect an increase in population, and the outcomes are not where they need to be. There's all sorts of fractures inside of health care, and lots of people trying to do something about it, but it's just not working the way it should be. So even a whopping big increase in health care transfer dollars, let's just think about it. The competitive nature, provincially and territorially, is really quite drastic. So more money simply just might mean more bidding and higher bidding for healthcare professionals. Does that necessarily fix some of the gaps in the system? I would suggest no. Of course, human resources are a massive part of making healthcare efficient and accessible and available, but it's not everything. So we're just going to see the numbers go up for the bidding process to lure one healthcare professional or another. And not to say that's not important, because it is. And also, if you want to talk about the fact that Bill C-11 is closer to passing than it was yesterday. 
And there's still lots of consternation out there about it, what it means for so-called censorship or freedom of expression. The government goes to the ends of the earth to just say it's about, you know, monitoring online content and Canadian-driven content. But there's lots of concerns on Bill C-11. And I, I speak on the airwaves for a living, so it's something that I'm willing to talk about. And if you want to as well. A couple more quick federal notes. This one is infuriating. Okay. So employees of the Employment and Social Development Canada Integrity Services told the uh, Senate Committee, or pardon me, a parliamentary committee last Thursday that they've identified 49 of their employees who received the CERB, the Candor Mercy Response Benefit. The trick, they were still working full time for the government, knowing full well they were not eligible for the money, but they applied for it anyway. And now, as a result, justifiably and rightfully so, they have been fired exactly where they belong, out the door. Imagine doing that. You know, positions of trust, and we've heard examples of that here in this province, and that's a glaring one coming from Ottawa, and here's some of the numbers. So there's been some uh, questionable payments of maybe $27.4 billion in suspicious COVID-19 benefit payments out the door. There may be more federal employees that are going to fall under that proverbial axe, maybe even at CRA where they know full well they weren't eligible but applied for it anyway. So they're trying to recover the monies. They say at this moment in time, they've recovered about $1.68 billion in overpayments from the 1.8 million Canadians who maybe should not have but did anyway get it. Now, not everybody did it as a nefarious approach. There was a lot of confusion, and there was certainly a lack of oversight and monitoring. But we're happy enough to claw back monies, and we should for the people like those 49, every single cent, and they should actually face a fine. But I haven't heard a whole lot of political will and want to talk about how some companies used the wage subsidy. It was important if you were keeping people on the payroll, but that's not how many people used it. Anyone? Back to town. So the month strike enters its second week. And no surprise here. Emotions are ramping up, and they have been for quite a long time. But with the ability for nursing students to return to their clinical placements to hit their graduation target in May... Now, of course, other faculties and other students are going to say, what about me? And they're right to ask it. So the decision is good for the nursing students and will be good for the healthcare system, but it does pit faculty against faculty, student against student. One student who's uh, quoted in a news item is working towards a social work degree. And, of course, social workers, there's a shortage of, we're told, and they are a critically important component inside of healthcare and community-based services, but they're not able to go back to their placements. And so they've got to satisfy their last work placement of some 350 hours, and right now they're not able to do so. So their graduation has been compromised, quite possibly. Not yet, but quite possibly. So they all want to speak in solidarity as you know, members of the student union to stand with the faculty association, but that's all fine. And then there's another lady who's working towards a degree regarding mineral exploration. And she's got a job lined up. Maybe her graduation is now compromised as well. So, you know, it felt good for the nursing students and good for them. And we need those grads. But we need the social workers. We need the geotechs. We need all the graduates to hit their targets. But now, possibly, because one faculty is allowed to proceed, others left behind. And not great. How are we doing on the phone there, David? All right. uh, Very quick before we go. Congratulations to what must be three outstanding students. They have become finalists for the Lawrence Scholarship, a highly prestigious award given out to some high school grads here in the country. There was 4,800 applications, 
only 90 were selected as finalists nationwide and three from this province. That's Sarah Talk from Holy Spirit High, Max Pittman of Cornerbrook Regional High, and Caitlin Brion of El- uh, Elwood High. They're now going to have to make their way to Toronto at the end of the month for their law and national interviews. It comes with a scholarship amount of in excess of $100,000. 100000 I've actually heard some applications read aloud to me. The impressive nature of these young people to even qualify as a finalist for the Lauren Award, bravo. And they're destined to do great things, so good on those folks. And just a heads up to the listening public, whether you be out in the Port of Port Peninsula or anywhere else, John Risley from World Energy GH2 is going to be on the program, we think, somewhere in the 10 o'clock hour. So I've got questions for Mr. Risley, and I'm sure you do as well. If you want to pose them to me, and I'll ask them on your behalf, if at all possible, Please send it on Twitter or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Send us an email. It's openline at VOCM.com. Or give us a shout, and we'll talk to you live on the program. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number three. George, you're on the air. Uh, what are you at, Patty Boy? Not much, man. What are you at? Uh, this is it, my son. Join the day off. Good. So listen, uh, I've heard you in the preamble talking about the homelessness stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to work over the weekend, and... Even just to go out for a smoke, it like freezing, like you're froze to death, right? But uh, me and my buddy got to talking, and um, why don't they like open up a place? Like, okay, you're I know from the show that you're Catholic, right? I am, yeah. The Basilica up there is probably your church. That's like a pretty big church, right? All them pews in the church. A lot of people could sleep in like them pews. You know what I mean? Just grab a blanket and they, it could be a place to get out the cold, right? There's lots of options. Overnight. You're right. Whether it be churches open their doors or warming or centers opened by municipalities, you're absolutely right. But then, of course, it takes human resources to monitor those types of things. I know whether it be a school, gym, or what have you, that would be a big tangle. Certainly the church community should and does provide some of these shelter options as well. But it's just remarkable to me that this past weekend, if people were left with no other option but to be outdoors, it's a wonder we haven't heard of stories of people perishing. Yeah, literally freezing to death. Yeah. Freezing to death. It, it was really cold, yeah. But I mean, like, and, and like you got places like the glacier. Like, uh, there's no need for people to be out in that, that kind of weather. Like, uh, I don't think. Well, I agree with you 100%. You know, municipalities do have the ability, and they do quite often, opening a warming center so people can get in and out of the elements, warm up with a cup of tea or what have you, and so they should. And that's every municipality across the board because the rental crunch and the numbers of people, the homelessness numbers that are even just here in the city of St. John's have risen about 300% in a couple of years. This is a crisis. I mean, we talk about crisis in healthcare and crisis in access to food. The numbers of people living on the streets is absolutely a crisis. Yeah, it, it is. It's crazy. It's shocking, really. Yeah. But no, I, I just thought he had a really good idea when he mentioned it, so I said, geez, like, I don't know why they're not doing something like that, right? He's right. It's so simple, right? Wherever we can open the door and the heat is on and people can get some solace from the cold, all of these things have to be considered. Uh, and, and all the while, try to address the long-term strategy because even opening up the Basilica or the gym at Vanier or the theater at St. Pons could help for those short bursts of time. Yeah. But we've got to address long-term as much as we have to deal with it, the, immediate, the immediacy of the concerns, which absolutely we do. But we've got to do more to figure out the long-term solutions as well because the numbers are going to continue to grow unless we do something about it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, I mean, uh, unfortunately, it's 
statistics will say too, a lot of that is addiction too, right? Unfortunately. Absolutely. I have to take it on from every angle imaginable, 100%. Listen, do you think your Habs are playing garbage because they want Bernard or what? Hope so. <laughs> they, they definitely need them, I think. Yeah, it's been a dreadful year. I mean, we've got some good young guys, and then with Caulfield going out for the rest of the season, he was, he had a real chance of scoring 50 goals, first half in a long time. So I like some of the young guys, but we're pretty thin. Yeah, and the same with Chicago, though. They're having a bad season over there, too, eh? Well, they'll be they'll be uh, selling the shop here, I would imagine. Look for Taves to move, for sure. I don't know, maybe Kane as well. But they've had a great run, and they've had an excellent team and a couple of Stanley Cups to show for it. But I would imagine there's a fire sale coming in Chicago. How did, how did Taves fall off so much? I, I don't get that either. Well, I mean, I think many people remember Taves as the superstar goal scorer from the World Junior, say, for instance, where he scored all those penalty shots for us, remember? And then he's had been a pretty solid offensive player. But Taves has been really, realistically, a classic two-way guy. So yeah. I don't think people really... They set the bar of expectation on Jonathan Taves offensively way beyond what he was. Great leader, great captain, great defensive player, good on the face-off, can chip in offensively. But people had him pegged for 100 points and 50 goals all the time when that was never realistic for him, I don't think. Uh, I guess, yeah. But, I mean, I, I, I kind of compare him to Bergeron, but Bergeron was pretty consistent with scoring too, right? So. Oh, Bergeron, I mean, future Hall of Famer. What a hockey player that boy is. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah he really is. As much as I dislike the Bruins wholeheartedly, he's something else. <laughs> All right, Patty. That's all I got to say, bud. Appreciate the time, George. Have a good one. You too, bud. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, the housing issue is on my mind a lot. I know that same one, throw in food or whatever else I hear about all the time. Of course, we're concerned about it. Let's go to line one. Don, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thank you. How about you? I'm good, sir. I was uh, downstairs last night just like in the woods to open. I picked up the telegram and saw a piece. The gentleman had a letter to the editor saying about a picture of a man fly fishing January 15th or the 16th down, I believe, where Rennie's River goes in the Kitty Valley or Waterford River goes in the Kitty Valley. Mm-hmm. And then he went on saying, the quote, the, uh, the fisheries guide saying that the uh, trout, and he's talking about fly fish for trout and uh, saying that the sea's not open until February the 1st. And I looked at that, and uh, everything's how you look at it, Patty. And then I said, I'll read on a bit, and then they start to refer to the person as a poacher. So uh, but this might bring attention, see where it goes. Uh, I enjoy fly fishing for trout, and uh, a lot of people do, and uh, they like to go when they want to go. But the question is, Patty, where was this person fishing down the Kitty Vitty? I'm, I'm familiar with Kitty Vitty. Was he right at the salt water, or was he up in the pond more towards the lake? I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. I didn't pay much attention. I think there's an addition of the weekend uh, telly out in the newsroom. I'll have a look and see if I can get a better idea. Because, Patty, what goes on, if, if he's down fur, further... And there's also in the guide here, there's a lot of information there, rules and regulations. He might not have been a poacher. Because you're you're permitted to fly fish for trout, coastal waters, any time of the year. Inland waters is different. Yep. And coastal waters is in the guide there. Outside, outside spring, springtide, low water marks coastal waters. 
Like, I live in Bernie, salt waters on both sides of me. If I wanted to go down over the bank here today and fly fish, I'm permitted. That's coastal water. Now, a lot of people, you know, get twisted up with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. So if someone was labeled a poacher when they weren't poaching anything, it's something we should be able to talk about. I'll have a look for the picture and see if I can figure it out. Yeah, and a while ago, I'll tell you, now when there's a lot of people who enjoy uh, uh, trouting, and I was over visiting a good friend of mine over in Spanish Bay a while ago, Paul Carroll, and he brought it my attention. And I've had it happen to me. Years ago, I left here, and a friend of mine, good friend, used to go to Briggs, just across the bay. And I had a man come up to me. I was fishing there. And he said, you're not familiar with this, are you? I thought to myself, well, I knew all about it. They didn't want you there. But Briggs is one of these spots uh, where in the community, you can go over there any time of the year and try for trout if you want to. You're not breaking the law. Murray's Vale is another place. I believe Topsail Beach. There's numerous places on the Avalon. So, uh, you know what I'm saying? Everything is how you look at it, Patty. Of course. And we all have different perspectives and, you know, even different hobbies where we know more about where you can and cannot fish at whatever point in the season. I know that winter trouting opened up, I think it was today out in Gross Morn. Uh, you have to get a permit, though. So I appreciate this, Don. What I will do, maybe during the, one of the news breaks, I'll have a look for that picture, see if I can really understand exactly where they're getting their line wet. Yeah, and uh, when I was talking to Paul Carey a while ago, he's been places, and another man, uh, Paul Smith, I know Paul, he lives over in Spanish Bay here. He puts a good article in the, in the Telegram, and his website is Fly Fishing the Rock. Uh, Paul and a lot of his friends enjoy this type of fishing, right? So maybe it'll bring attention to that matter and get it more out in the open, Patty. Sounds good to me. Let me see what I can figure out, Tom. Thanks very much. Have a great day. You too, buddy. All the best. I know. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, winter trout season is indeed now open out in Gross Morn. A national park runs all the way till the middle of April, the 15th, I'm pretty sure. You do have to pick up a permit. Uh, you do it at the parks building in Rocky Harbor. Uh, there's no fee. But you either have to have a Grossmore National Park Pass or a Park Ca- Parks Canada Discovery Pass to receive a permit. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Cindy's in the queue to talk housing, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, uh, well, not so good. Um, I'm I'm a 58-year-old female uh, with a disability, and uh, I'm facing homelessness tomorrow. And I've been feverishly looking for an apartment, and nothing has panned out yet. And I don't even know. Um, I can't stay in an ordinary shelter because I need home care. I need help to get up and down off the bed. Um, I don't know. I've got different organizations that are funding my rent and stuff, um, but none of them have come through yet with anything uh, that would meet my needs, even temporarily. So it's very, um, it's very, very nerve-wracking, to say the least. Why are you uh, being evicted, or why are you losing your home? So um, what, I lived at a place for four years, and I was given notice to move. Um, because he was, uh, he decided to sell the place. So 
I had a struggle then. That was only in August. I had a struggle then to find a place. I overstayed my welcome at that place for three weeks, and he didn't charge me any rent or anything. But, and it was only a fluke I found this place. Like, there was 300 people called about this house, and they just happened to like me, so they chose me. But since I moved in here, um, they sold this house two months after I moved in. And they have family members getting out of their apartment moving in here. So um, I have to go. So once again, I'm in the same situation, same boat, only it's winter time now, you know, and very, very cold at this time. So um, every everything that I've called about, I've got to look in at two or three apartments. Uh, one man said, yes, you can have it once I told him my situation. And I went ahead and called Stella Circle because they've been helping me. And they went ahead and booked the movers for me. And then at the last minute, the man texted me and said I gave it to my friend. So no money was gone to him, but I did have money in my hand. The only thing is when I got there, he said it was oil heat. And then I didn't know if these organizations that fund my um, rent and stuff would, would also pay towards oil. So I had to find all that out. And by the time I found it out, he had given it away to someone else. What type of... <laughs> Accommodations do you need? I think that's the word you used. Something that would be appropriate for your level of need. So what would that be? Are you talking about long-term or just uh, temporarily? While Either or. Right? Yeah. Um, I have rheumatoid arthritis since I was 12. I'm 58 now. Uh, I have mobility issues. I've had two hip replacements, one knee replacement. My ankles are almost fused now. It's hard to, it's hard to get up steps, but there are some steps that I can navigate with help. Uh, there are some steps I can manage without help. It depends on what they're like. Um, but I'm looking for, for once in my life, I'd like to have a totally accessible place. Um, in October, Newfoundland Labrador Housing came on board with some funding towards my rent at this house. That's the first time I ever applied because I never had a problem up till I never had a problem finding a place that was suitable to me or that I enjoyed up till, say, um, August, right? Um, but now it's become an issue, so I applied for housing. They 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 pay about one, let me think, a little more than uh, half of my rent. And then there's two organizations that pay the other parts of it. But that was through a lot of fighting on the phone, and, and uh, one organization said, no, we're not going to pay anything. Then at the last minute, they came through, with money, so then now when I'm moving, I don't know if that that is something they. I didn't know if that would be something they would do. So it's that insecurity, you know, not knowing if they will say no, we're not paying anything. Um, so housing doesn't have anything to give me now. One housing officer said to me, "We don't give housing units to single people," and I said, "I'm sure I've got disabled friends that are single that live in housing units." Uh, and I'm facing homelessness, and I, you know, overall, I'd like to have a place accessible, but I can manage, like, two or three steps. Or inside, believe it or not, if there are seven or eight steps, I can get up backwards if I lean on my right arm because that is, uh, I feel strong that way. But, I mean, ideally, I'd like to have a, a totally accessible place, yes. There's nothing out there. No, I, mean, I, I know. Calling, 
My friends have been calling. If you even get a viewing right now, you're absolutely lucky. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to me tomorrow. Cindy, did you were you receiving some rental support? Uh, do you mean financially? Like, well, yes. So, social, social services gives me one forty nine towards my rent. When I moved here, Eastern Eastern Health was providing some. They were topping up to seven fifty total, including uh, social services for years. That was their top up seven fifty for anybody with disability that that uh, was approved. When I moved here, the rent was really expensive. Here it was like fourteen hundred. I didn't want to get a expensive place, and I didn't want to put a burden on the government like that. And I didn't even want to live in this area because I'm so familiar with St. John's. This is Mount Pearl, and I'm far away from my mom, who's in a senior's home and stuff like that. But anyway, I took it because there was no other place to take. And uh, and uh, so I had to kind of fight with Eastern Health to get them to pay, you know, uh, up to 1400 instead of 750 and they did pay it for short terms and they told me no after this we will not pay it any longer but then they knew housing was approved but it took a while a month or two before housing cut in with 647 dollars towards the rent so then eastern health did pay the rest up to 1400 even though they told me they wouldn't so now they told me they would pay me up till january because they knew i was moving out at the end of january when, Jan- when February 1st came, there was no money in my account from Eastern Health because they didn't, like, I told them I'm still here. I can't find a place. Uh, but now they're saying, okay, um, they will fund me if I can find an accessible place. But there's another barrier now because to find a place totally, totally accessible now is pretty hard to find. And, sure. Uh, Between so accessible they, and affordable, just uh, let me backtrack yes. just very quickly, Cindy. It's a lot of information. It's very complicated. Absolutely. So, what kind of notice were you given that you were being evicted? Just because I'm, I'm trying to think about where I can point you while I'm listening. So, yeah. What kind of notice did you get? They gave me three months' notice, and they've been really, really good to me and helpful in every way. And they've given me a five-day extension here until Tuesday, which is tomorrow. That was as of four days ago and so I've been looking feverishly I got like probably 85% of my stuff packed uh, my friends have been helping me I still got uh, some boxes tape up and stuff like that so I have a nice bit of stuff I mean I've been living in St. John's since I was 18 from Twillingate so 40 odd years you know you, you clicked up a few items and uh, I've never had enough home care hours to be able to downsize and I can't downsize myself so I would give half of it away if I had help with size. But this is the situation I'm in. So I went out, got a loan from a friend, and I got a storage unit, 10 by 10, uh, for this month. And I'm going to have to put some stuff there. But then the truck is approved only for a move, okay, a one-time move. So what do I do about getting my stuff to storage now? And then if I use the truck for that, then I have to come up with money on my own to move into a place that I'll get me. We might be able to figure that part out. Uh, Cindy, what I'm going to do is I'm just waiting to hear back from a point of contact that I have, just looking if I can share this person's number with you. So while I wait for that return email, can I put you on hold? You just stick with that, and when I get the return email, I'll give the number to Dave, and he can pass it along to you, which might be of some help. 
No problem. Can I just say one sure. one one thing about the barriers that I feel that we face right now? Um, and this is in no way racist because I have many friends from other countries that I love here, mm-hmm. and I've helped many of them settle in through the years. I picked them up at the airport. I had 16 Syrian refugees in my house for Christmas supper a couple of years ago. Uh, but I feel that the government, like Jerry Burns, always, you know, he's on the news, he's bragging about how many people have been brought in, the population is growing, want to help our economy and all that. But it makes no sense to keep bringing them in if we don't have a place ourselves. And they don't have a place either. And, like, of course, they're in war-torn countries. They need help. But what I'm saying is this is also um, taking a lot of our houses. Like, for instance, my situation now, uh, now I need help. You know, now I need – I've helped a lot of people from other countries. Now I need help. What do I do and where do I go? Well, the ambitious targets that the federal government has set for immigration, all the yeah. while there's housing concerns across yeah. the country. So yeah. I understand where you're coming from. Now, I do have a... All right. I'm going to give you... A, I'm going to give Dave a couple of numbers. To, uh, he'll pass them on to you. I'm going to put you on hold, but just stay there for a second, okay? Sure, I will, yeah. Okay, so... Da, 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 da. I think we've got you some help on at least the truck front, but maybe maybe an option in the housing front as well. So just go ahead and stay on hold for a second, Cindy. I'll give these numbers to Dave. Yeah, thank you. Okay, take care. Right there. Thank you. Uh, good luck. Uh, okay, let's, will I take Oral before the break, Dave? Sure, let's go to line number three. Oral, you're on the air. How are you doing, Patty? Not bad, you? Patty, I just want to wish my, ha- my brother a happy birthday over the line, if you don't mind. Sure. And I- I went out yesterday, Patty, because uh, I'm with a girl now. She's in a wheelchair, and I had to get out and get, get her help all the time, see? And it's hard riding a bike. So I just want to put out to her, uh, someone stole my bike there on Golf Avenue yesterday. She's a giant, and I'd love to get it back if I can. And if there's anybody out there that can help me get in a bike, I, I love biking. Right? They sold her out Golf, Golf Avenue. Yeah, my brother never had the camera on, Patty. We had to have the camera on, and we would have had him, see? Okay. Some brave, though, to come down and rock on your property and steal a bike, Patty. People are brutal. Oh, my God. I just can't believe it. That's my only access for transportation, because I don't like getting the bus and that. Because I, like, I got anxiety and depression. That's what does the trick, Bert, see? Exercising, right? Yep. So you lost a Golf Avenue, or someone stole it, pardon me, yesterday, yeah. Golf Avenue. What color giant bike is it? Uh, green. She's all green. She's a really nice, pretty bike. And you got the great big tires on her for the winter and that, right? Yep. Yeah, so, you know, she, uh, navy green, like, you know, army green, like, the army trucks and that. I got it. That's the kind of bike. And uh, I, re- I really miss her. But, you know, I don't know why people take stuff on people, but I haven't got a clue, but... Uh, listen, if someone sees it and knows what to do about it, what do you want to do? You want them to call you? Uh, I'd love to, yes. I'll give my uh, number out, uh, 740. Okay. 740-2639. I'd love to have my little babe, all faithful, back. Hopefully you get it, Oral. Good luck, sir. Fingers crossed. Right. Thank you, buddy. You're welcome. Take care. All right. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, we did indeed pass a couple of numbers along to Cindy. Hopefully they are helpful. And we'll get an update from her hopefully later today or tomorrow. Let's go ahead and take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Pat, you're on the air. 
Uh, hi, Patty. I uh, hope you're having doing well. Uh, Patty, I'm calling just on uh, concern myself and a friend of mine. We're just wondering if someone in a position, who, uh, you know, a legal position to be able to say without violating anybody's privacy. Uh, we went, uh, my friend went out yesterday morning and he saw the guy uh, trying to load him aboard the ambulance. Uh, down around Lime Street downtown, there's a park there and there's an old gentleman in his 80s. He always goes down there feeding the birds, especially when the weather is really bad. Uh, he might have fell, hit his head or whatever, but anyway, the paramedics were trying to get him all on a stretcher and over the snowbank yesterday morning. And just concerned, you know, if the poor fellow is did hit his head to whatever if he's you know make sure just wondering if he's well or if if you know he did uh, break a hip uh, hit his head whatever you know just hoping that the poor fellow is well is well because he's doing a good thing you know feeding the birds enjoying it and whatever uh so just um my best to if anybody knows him all my best to him and i hope he hope the poor fellow is well and if if anyone has an update on him, I'd appreciate, you know, Lane David or yourself. Uh, no, we're just phoning in and make a comment. And then, you know, if I'm talking to David later, he can say, yeah, I got an update on so-and-so. Okay. Uh, no names man. No names need to be mentioned. I'm not looking for any names of the person or whatever. I just know he lived. No, because I've seen him before. My friend has seen him before. He lives on Lime Street, uh, an 80-year-old. In his 80s, a gentleman. And we're just hoping he's well. Thank you, Patty. No problem. Have Thanks, Pat. Weekend. You too. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, so if anyone has a, an update on his condition, you can pass it along to me. We can pass it along to Pat. Because I, I'm not really sure <clears throat> what happened. Not familiar with the situation, so I wouldn't have one available to him. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, here we go. Oh, let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Christy P. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm doing great, actually. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you again for the opportunity to come on the show and speak to all of your listeners about our wonderful program, Caring Cards for Seniors. I love it. Happy anniversary. <laughs> thank you. So there's a couple important items I'd like to mention to your listeners this morning in relation to our program. So the first is we are currently celebrating our one-year anniversary of Caring Cards for Seniors. Uh, to date, we have provided over 1,700 handmade birthday cards to seniors in 26 long-term care homes. Uh, we currently have 263 members of our group, and we have multiple schools involved. Wow. It's so really grown. It's huge, yes, it's a huge accomplishment for us. Uh, a year ago, we started out with only a couple of seniors' homes and a few volunteers. So we would really like to thank everyone who's participated and supported the program, and we are so excited to celebrate this one-year achievement. So who's doing what exactly? You know, so you mentioned the number of homes that you're servicing, the volunteers and schools are on board. What are you asking people to do? Basically, what we're asking people to do is several things. Um, one, uh, they can donate cards, and again, we need cards to keep this program going or they can donate supplies to make the cards. And the other thing, Patty, as we continue to grow, and what we're hoping to do now this year is expand throughout the eastern region. So, again, we will need more people for deliveries, supplies, and cards. Those are the key things that we're really going to need. And also people spreading the word and, you know, sharing our posts and our Facebook page. 
we know full well, like even when the pandemic began, and I would imagine well before that, there's nothing quite like getting something in the mail that is not a flyer or a, a bill, because that type of communication, whether it be from a student or just another member of the general public who took it upon himself in their own free time, and I would imagine at their own expense, to go out and fill out a birthday card or anything else to send to a senior. I'm sure the smiles have grown just as much as the numbers, uh, the ranks that you were representing here this morning. Yes, Patty. And over the weekend, I hosted another uh, kids event. So I host every month or two. I have kids here at my own home, and we make cards for the seniors. And no matter how many times I do this, I'm always left just feeling so inspired by the children. When I see, like, the dedication, how focused they are, all their creativity, what they pour into these cards, it is nothing short of remarkable. It is just so wonderful. And really why I like this program so much, it's just such a great learning opportunity for children and adults, really about being selfless, you know, appreciating others, remembering how connected we all are, and really understanding that one of the greatest gifts we can give is just giving to others. So is it only for birthdays? Um, that's the second thing I'm going to discuss now. Okay. Right now we are doing birthdays for the seniors, but on the topic of giving, um, the second significant item I really want to talk about is this is our second annual Valentine's Day campaign for staff coming up. So given that Valentine's Day is a holiday to show people that we care, we thought it was only fitting to take this day to show staff how much we value what they do for seniors on a daily basis. So we have received hundreds and hundreds of handmade Valentine's Day cards from children, from adults, from all of our volunteer members, as well as, like, our school community. So that's been huge, such a huge support. So through our cards, we just want to say to staff that we thank you so much for their compassion, their tireless efforts haven't gone unnoticed. And we really, truly appreciate each and every single staff for what they do for seniors, whether it's going that extra mile, being that conversation, that support. So that's our way to say to staff, thank you so much. So we are currently really busy now within the next few days trying to get all these um, packages out and delivered to the staff. So we think it's going to be really appreciated. And so that's one of the other key things that we do. Has, have any of these cards ended up uh, turning into a pen pal relationship where the senior knows who sent it and there's a return address and all of a sudden we've got some pen pal relationships established? We haven't done that yet, Patty, but that is a great idea. And I know even some of the kids sign their own name to the cards, but that could be something that we could certainly explore in the future. And another key thing as well is that one we, I had mentioned to you in previous conversations that we would like to go into homes and have seniors make cards for other seniors. So this is something else that some of our volunteers are actually going in this week, and they're going to make cards with seniors for other seniors. Nice. And I think that is just amazing. And I'm sure you'll get a big uptake on that as well. So between the birthday cards and the Valentines and the new programs you're trying to bring forward as part of care, uh, caring cards for seniors, I think it's awesome. But I'm really impressed and pleased that the numbers of people that you're serving, the numbers of people helping have grown so quickly in just one year. I know. And even I think 33% is the increase that we've now received in handmade cards. So a lot of times now we have enough cards to keep the program running, not just for monthly, but even we have enough for like a couple months supply at a time, which is great. 
I think it's brilliant. So if anyone wants to get involved, whether it be at a school or a senior's home or just someone in the general public, what do they have to do? Um, they can view our Caring Cards for Seniors Facebook page, or they can contact myself at Christy, K-R-I-S-T-Y underscore Pete, P-E-E-T, at Hotmail.com. Sounds awesome. I've got your email address. If anyone wants to zip off, uh, email to me. If they didn't have a chance to jot it down, I'll go ahead and forward your coordinates to them. Thank you so much, Patty, for your support. Happy to do it. And I'd just like to leave and uh, share this with uh, listeners. This is what I say to, to the children and all the adults, actually. So your acts of kindness are small, but the impact that they leave on the world will be huge. And I think that's so true and so relevant to our program. Here, here. Great, great stuff. Keep it up. Okay. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day. Same to you, Christy. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. That's Christy Pete. Caring cards for seniors. Wow, those numbers have grown pretty big in the last uh, 12 months. So if you want to contact Christy, your email address is Christy, K-R-I-S-T-Y underscore Pete, which is P-E-E-T uh, at Hotmail.com. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. The topic is up to you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Join us on line number three is the man behind the World Energy GH2 proposal out on the Port of Port Peninsula. There are 164 wind turbines, the hydrogen plant, and the ammonia plant. That's John Risley. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. So there's been blockage, uh, blockades set up at the test site out in mainland where you're going to construct a meteorological evaluation tower. What permits were required and put in place for that tower to be constructed? Um, the tower is being uh, built on crown lands, and so we were uh, required to seek permission from the crown lands folks, which we have, and in addition, uh, we, as part of our overall application, you'll be aware that there's a, a broad-based environmental study going on, and we require access to various spots on the whole Port of Port Peninsula in order for our people to carry out the various studies that are linked to this environmental assessment report that we're, we're required to file with the province. Was there any assessment of what the clearing of land may have an impact on the water in the area? Because that's one of the concerns from the people who are protesting on the site, is that it's had a negative impact on the water. Sure. And, and look, our, our job, Patty, is to listen to people's legitimate concerns. Um, the water problem on uh, in the mainland area predates our arrival on the scene. Uh, and notwithstanding that, uh, we have offered uh, to the folks in the area uh, to bring uh, people who have expertise in this area, uh, water consultants, and engineers, uh, to the area to try to determine exactly what the problem is with their water supply and to help them, um, once we understand what that water supply is, what, what the water supply problem is, uh, to figure out what the solution is using professional consultants and, and then determine what can be done about it. But uh, that offer has not been taken up by uh, the the people, the protesters. It's, I think it's welcomed by the population at large, but the protesters don't seem interested. Here's one of the quotes uh, directly from a protester. It's hard to know who we can trust anymore because the company is not very transparent and we can't seem to get any answers to our questions. Your response? 
Yeah, that's not, I, 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 that is not a fair statement. We've got uh, an office in the area in, at the Stephenville Airport. We have people from that office that uh, travel to all the communities uh, in the area on a weekly basis. We're active on social media. We're making uh, uh, weekly reports to the community on, on what it is we're doing. We're open to everybody's questions. We do our best to answer them. I, I don't think the lack of transparency is a fair criticism at all. You talked about the, the voices of people who are either proponents and or opponents to this project. It seems pretty clear, the people that I speak with on the Port of Port Peninsula and the voices that are making their way into the media calling this program, the polling or surveys they've done out there, is the majority don't want this project to take place where it's currently proposed. So there's always the concept of social license or a social contract. You've heard the voices, they don't want the project there. Any considerations moving further away from residential areas? Yeah, look, we have promised, uh, we, we're aware that one of the rumors is that there's going to be expropriation of people's houses so we can erect wind turbines. That is absolutely not the case, unequivocally not the case. There's no contemplation that we'd even be uh, remotely close uh, to any uh, uh, dwelling that's inhabited. In fact, we've said, I think, that, that we won't want, a wind turbine will not be within a kilometer uh, of any occupied dwelling. So I'm not sure that, that, uh, that people are acting or, or uh, giving off opinions that are consistent with the, with, the, with the facts. And we don't agree that a majority of people are in opposition. In fact, quite the contrary, we've done our own polling. Uh, and uh, that suggests that, that well over 85% of the population of the Port of Port Peninsula wholeheartedly support this project, as do all the uh, leaders of the various communities, all the senior ele elected folks. I'm sure you've read them as much as I have. People talking about the business case for green hydrogen in particular. I know we have memorandums of understanding signed between, uh, for instance, Stephenville and folks in Germany. The provincial and federal governments have signed on to one. What's the status of a power purchase agreement? Because the business model would have to be satisfied not only for your group, but for the consumers on the other end. So do you have a PPA in place? Yeah, um, we have. Uh, we are deep in negotiations with various uh, users of green ammonia and green hydrogen, and we are very confident that uh, we will have. Uh, we're having something called a financial close in September or October, and uh, by that time we will need to have a power purchase agreement or, or an agreement signed uh, for the purchase of our of our green ammonia and our green hydrogen, and we expect that that will be the case. So we're we're very happy with the progress of those discussions. Are there any complications with uh, trade agreements, for instance, in this case would be CETA, with this type of proposal and the business model that you've established? Look, on a project of this size, there are always complications. Uh, there are always issues that one has to overcome. But uh, the economy generally, society as a whole, has to move in the direction of, of, of green energy. Part of the problem, Patty, is that what we're doing has not been done before. There are not large green hydrogen projects anywhere in North America at the moment. Uh, and so we're breaking new ground uh, and regulatory policy has to sort of follow, if you like, and, and, uh, uh, and regulators have to put in place the appropriate regulations to allow this to happen. But we're getting good support 
from both provincial and federal governments, and uh, we'll work through uh, those sorts of issues as they arise. So does the project align with CETA as it stands today? Yeah, they're not the permitting authority. We, 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 our primary permitting authority is the provincial government, uh, and it's uh, the provincial government with whom we're engaged on things like environmental review, access to crown lands, uh, permits to construct the plant, all those kinds of things. The federal government, apart from water course issues and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in respect of, of water issues, don't really have a role to play. What's the status of negotiations with the province? We're trying to get some word from Minister Parsons in particular because it's all about what's in it for us. And I don't think that's a selfish thing to say out loud. You know, whether it be with the creation of jobs and the expanded tax, tax, uh, tax base, pardon me, and or royalties. Will there be a royalty paid, whether it be for access to water or anything else? Yeah, so that's a great question, Patty. And uh, the government, the provincial government carried out a... Uh, um, a sort of interaction with industry and, and was interested in submissions. I think many uh, proponents uh, offered up their views. I think there's a realization within the industry as a whole, and certainly within the context of our group, we accept that the fact that 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 they, the economic benefits can't just be the jobs. There have to be some sort of, as you say, royalty paid, uh, and there's models for that and how we treat uh, investments in the offshore oil industry, for instance. So uh, I can't tell you where the government is in, in this respect or when they're going to announce what their policy is. Government folks would have to tell you that. I can't tell you that the, that the ongoing permitting process uh, is just that. It's an ongoing permitting process. We have to submit in March of this year, so just next month, uh, our Crown Lands application, if you like, to determine whether or not we're going to be given access to crown lands, but no such access will be given until such time as we're released from our environmental uh, approval process, and that's not going to happen until uh, September. So uh, this is as a, a very involved uh, process with all sorts of, of component parts having to come together, if you like, uh, before we're actually approved to proceed. <laughs> Also to maximize benefits for people in the region would be the required training. I know there's a partnership being struck between the College of the North Atlantic and I believe a Scandinavian organization, but people need to have the training prior to this project getting off the ground because it's one thing to have ongoing training and then maybe through attrition we'll see some possibilities for people in the province. What's the commitment to have all the training required for anybody who wants it on the Port of Port Peninsula so they can get in on the ground floor? Yeah, great question, um, and thanks for asking it. Our commitment is to provide people uh, exactly what you say, the required training. Uh, obviously, we want to hire local people um, so we don't have to move people in to, to take the jobs that become available. And the outfit with which we're partnered is actually a, a Dutch-based outfit, um, and they're very skilled at this. They've got a number of schools around uh, the world. They know how to do this. There have been ongoing discussions with the college of, uh, uh, as you say, the local college folks, and uh, we expect that, that we will be able to initiate programs very shortly after we get to uh, final permitting this fall. The, we know that the federal government has pots of money available to support projects like this. 
But then in the most recent meetings between finance ministers and Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, there was a bit of additional commentary that came across quite grey and maybe offered in code. Talk about the need for the provinces to step up and do more. So Minister Parsons, the last time we spoke, said there will be no provincial money going to this project, but something has changed in the last little while. No one's being very forthcoming. Do you know anything about provincial backstop your project or provincial dollars that will now flow to World Energy GH2? Because it once was not the case, but based on what I heard from the Deputy Prime Minister, she's looking for the provinces to step up in these transition type of projects. Has there been an update and a change of tune, whether it be from your company or the province? I'm not aware of any change in tune. We've not asked the provincial government for any funding. We don't intend to ask the provincial government for any funding. And I, I don't uh, think that, that uh, any is, is about to be offered by uh, the province. The uh, Deputy Minister, or sorry, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland is going to make clear in the March budget uh, exactly what support the federal government is going to offer the whole renewable energy space, not just um, uh, green hydrogen, but as I say, the whole uh, renewable energy space. And part, partly that's in response to the American legislation um, that came out uh, in the Environmental Protection Act. So we'll have to see what that looks like. But but I don't think there's been a change in in uh, in the discourse here, uh, Patty. I think the, the I don't think the province has any intention of providing any kind of financial support and i think the federal government understands it has to respond to the epa in some in some fashion you know before you get a green light and a release from the environmental assessment are you going to proceed without having finalized a power purchase agreement on the other side because i mean i'm not a i'm not a big businessman but i do know that spending billions of dollars up front without uh, absolutely securing the market at the end would be possibly a fool's errand so are you going to proceed without a power purchase agreement in place or is it fingers crossed? No, 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 no. If we, as you quite rightly say, uh, there's no basis upon which we could proceed uh, without having an agreement in place uh, to sell the product that we're going to be producing. So we have no intention of spending billions of dollars in the absence of just such an agreement. You know, as a Nova Scotia-based business person, did you pr- approach the government of that province to establish this proposal there before you looked to, to Newfoundland or Labrador? Uh, we did not, no. Why not? Um, because we looked around uh, for where we could find uh, the best wind resource in Atlantic Canada, and the west coast of Newfoundland stood out above all other areas. Um, it's got a better wind resource than is available onshore in Nova Scotia. What do you and other Nova Scotia investors or investors across the country have next as you look for opportunities in this province, whether it be with oil and gas assets or what have you, because coming to town with this, the first of its kind, there is that lingering thought that there's a next step in mind for you and other investors across the country. What's next after World Energy GH2? Mr. Risley? I can't hear him any longer, Dave. Yeah, sorry, I lost you there, Patty. Okay, sorry, we have you back. You know, the thought is that with this being a project, first of its kind, and a lot of regulatory issues that need to be cleared and business models that need to be secured and power purchase agreements is the thought that there's another step for John Risley. There's another step for Nova Scotia or other investors across the country as they eyeball this province for investment dollars. Is there, and what would that be? Yeah, sure. This has the potential to be a huge industry than the option. 
yeah, the connection's coming and going here now. A great thing, isn't it? A great thing that Newfoundland can play uh, an important role in the energy transition uh, game and be, uh, in fact, one of the greenest jurisdictions in North America. And I think that's entirely possible. So we see other projects, both in Nova Scotia and in Newfoundland. Uh, we're just, I think, uh, very much at the front of the pack, uh, trying to uh, uh, break new ground, if you like. And that will be supportive of a whole new industry. Given the tension which seems to be growing and some vandalism that happened on site to some of your equipment, an ATV was stolen. I mean, the onus is on everybody involved to temper these tensions. What's your role and the company's role? Because you know what happens here. Things have the potential to escalate. So what's your role in calming protesters, meeting with them, answering more questions, town halls, what have you? Because it looks like it's ramping up. Yeah, sure. Uh, that's a great question. Our, our role is to communicate. Our role is to be transparent and honest, uh, to, to do everything we can to calm people down. But we need to understand uh, what, what the real heart of the problem is. If the heart of the problem is uh, the water quality in the area, then let's roll up our sleeves collectively and figure out what it is and what everybody can do, the local community, ourselves, the province, uh, to actually fix th that problem. Um, the problem is you just don't want any development anywhere near you or you don't want jobs in the area. That's a different kind of problem. Um, I don't know that, that uh, any small group of people, 10 or 12 people, have the right to put up their hand and say, no, we don't want any kind of development, no development at all. Um, that's a different issue. If the issue is, as they say, what is being represented, which is we've got a water problem here, good. Uh, it's not good that you have a water problem, but okay, now we understand what the issue is. Let's see what we can do collectively to fix it. What's the plan for increased security on site? Because, of course, you want to protect your assets, but more security may indeed play a role in escalating tensions. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We don't want to, you know, show up with with the whole army of people and and have this uh, develop into a confrontation. On the other hand, we're trying to do what we've got authority and permits and approvals from the province to do, and we're carrying trying to carry about our uh, carrying out our our work in a in a lawful manner and a peaceful manner. And and I think uh, we deserve the respect of uh, of the local protesters to be able to do that. They don't have the right to stop us from doing that but but we need to be as i say where our interest is in not escalating uh this our 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 interest is in trying to understand what the root cause of the issue is and seeing what role we can play in solving it i'm sorry i mean these things are just popping into my head as we speak the project is predominantly for export what's the relationship world energy gh2 will have with the grid is there a thought of selling power back to the uh, provincial grid or you know, using provincial grid for power when required. What does that relationship look like? Yeah, so there's two issues here. One is, yes, when we do have surplus power, and we will have surplus power because we've got more uh, wind energy when the wind is blowing, then we'll have hydrogen capacity to convert that uh, wind into green hydrogen. So um, we would be offering uh, power back to the grid when we do have it available, and that will save uh, uh, Newfoundland Hydro considerable capital expense in terms of trying to recreate that backup, if you like, as, as the grid transforms away from uh, fossil fuels. And, and then we'd like to see, over time, we'd like to see hydrogen used in the local economy. We'd like to see fishing vessels being powered by uh, vessels that, that burn green ammonia or have hydrogen fuel cells. We'd like to see uh, buses in St. John's 
being operated off hydrogen fuel cells. We'd like to see offshore uh, support vessels for the oil industry uh, being green ammonia fueled. So we uh, <clears throat> that will take some time to develop, but that's part of the energy transition game, and we're hoping to play a role in that. Appreciate your time this morning, Mr. Risley. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. It's John Risley. One of the people behind World Energy GH2, hopefully we covered the ground you wanted covered. If not, you get back to me. We'll see if we can get the answers to your specific questions. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the show. With a response to John Ridgely is Angela on three. Angela, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. I have uh, uh, an opinion on, on this, and, uh, and, and I have a fact on this. My opinion is that he's full of uh, bull. I'm not telling lies about the community. The, the, the fact that I have is that there is more than 12 people who care about it. We did um, a house-to-house survey. We're up to 90% who don't want it. And for some reason, they don't seem to want to listen to that. So the protesters out here, which is... Um, to protect our land and our water, uh, we're all behind them. There's no percentage or whatever. They're there representing the community. The older people like us who can't be out there on the line, that's what our younger people is doing. They're there representing us and everyone else in the community. And if there is somebody out there who is not satisfied with it in the community, in that Riley community, they need to speak out and say they're not supporting it. He doesn't have the authority to speak for us because nothing comes out of his mouth but lies. And that's well, my opinion. So, I mean, are you basing that comment on his quote of 12 people or what else do you consider to be lies coming from the company or Mr. Risley? Well, the 12 people and all that, uh, all that things that got destroyed. When their equipment left mainland the other day, it was all videotaped. There was no damage done to that tractor or to the uh, or to the pickup. All of a sudden, everywhere on TV, on everything was blown up with all the things that was destroyed. Well, the pictures but are clear. So, who are you suggesting is responsible? I don't know, but I know it wasn't done when they removed their equipment from mainland. That I know, and there was a lot of people there who would stand next to it. And it was videotaped it, and it was no no damage done. So you don't think it's possible, Angela, that a frustrated protester did it? Uh, maybe once it was left mainland, I don't know, but I know when it left mainland, it wasn't done. Why don't you want the project where it's currently proposed? Uh, because it's not safe. What's on? What's unsafe? Well, it's, 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 not, it's not healthy. They're going, well, to destroy our, they're going to destroy our land. And then what? In reference to healthy, what's not healthy about it? Just so I have a better understanding of where you're coming from. Well, you know, all that noise is going to make, all the, all the oil that's going to go into the ground from, 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 the, from the turbines. Yeah. Where does the oil come from? I'll do it turbines upright. Yeah, so what you, are you just talking about whatever lubricants would be used? 
and all the other garbage around that they're going to be leaving behind like they already did now up on the mountains. What's interesting about the sound pollution concern is like even uh, municipal leaders in the area who went to, I believe, somewhere in Ontario to have a look at some of these large-scale projects, get a feel for what the sound pollution would be like, and they came back reporting that they had no issue with it, and they're the municipal leaders that represent you. I, I don't I would hate to put words in anyone's mouth, but even Mayor Cornick out in the area said they didn't have a concern with the, uh, the sound when they went and visited the farm, the wind farm in Ontario. Let me tell you something about our leaders. You okay? They they sold us out. All of them. All of our leaders who is for it got paid by Riley, sold us out. We were never part of the of the uh, of the bargaining chip. We were left out. The only time we knew what was happening is when it was on our doorstep. All our leaders they they all sold us out. Because you know what? This is not the first time they sold us out, and I'm sure it's not going to be the last time. Angela, are you suggesting that Mr. Risley paid them money for their opinions? Well, an opinion means nothing to people who don't listen to it. No, no. I, you say that they, they sold you out, and Mr. Risley bought their support or whatever, however we want to couch it. So are you suggesting that the company put money in the hands of one leader or another to be willing to sign on to an MOU or to be uh, supportive for the project? Is that what you're saying? Well, I have no proof, but I've read a lot that he gave money to organizations, yes. Such as? Um, I'm not sure off the top of my head because I wasn't prepared to answer this one. Oh, okay. I, I'm just picking up what you're laying down. That's all. That's the only reason I asked. Uh, I appreciate the call, Angela. Would you like to say anything thank else? You. No, thank you. But uh, we don't want any windmills here. And I can assure you, we will go down because we're not we're not uh, we're not going down lying down. We'll go down on our own two feet. And Riley is not welcome here nor any kind of turbines. Thank you for the call. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's see if we can get half uh, back on our break schedule. When we come back, we're talking the World Energy Forum. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Doc. You're on the air. Teddy. Morning, sir. How are you? Not bad, I suppose. You? Not bad at all, but I must say, got a few things on my mind this morning. Patty, I did listen to most of your conversation with uh, John Risley, Mm -hmm. and uh, two issues did come to my mind at the time, and I just mentioned them now. One is, from what I heard from Mr. Risley, he, in fact, is in charge of doing his own environmental assessment. Uh, Yeah, we've asked that question of uh, Mr. Risley and of the government, and I suppose the way it works is that the company's proponents take on the environmental assessment. It goes to the government for their review, and then they react with whatever concerns may indeed come to bear based on their own environmental, I'll call them experts in-house. Yeah. Yeah, that brings up a, a lot of worry, I have to say. I mean, uh, all companies, for argument's sake, don't get that privilege. The uh the uh, Federal Assessment Agency independently does an environmental assessment of anything they do. And uh, in this case, it's interesting, you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And uh, I just wonder how ethical it is for uh, Mr. Risley and his company, in fact, to 
put out for their own environmental assessment rather than having a government, be it provincial or federal, uh, independently select somebody to do the, the environmental assessment and Mr. Risley pays the bill. But he stays out of it. Are you telling me that oil companies don't contribute to environmental assessment and eventual uh, release? They contribute information, but the federal government and their assessment agency is in charge of the environmental assessment. The companies can't go out private assessor to do the environmental assessment. You know that. Yeah, but the process is fairly clear on that front, even though it's, it's above my head, I'll admit that freely, is there are questions asked and yeah. information gathered by proponents submitted to the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada to whether or not they accept them, reject them, ask for more information or clarification or more data, whatever the case may be. So it's very much a to and fro. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think it's ethical. But anyhow, I'll, I'll leave that and go to the question. Mr. Resley mentioned several times that there was no funding and provincial funding. Mm-hmm. And uh, my question would have been, because the rumour is out there, so we might as well make it public. Uh, my question is, is there a guarantee or the promise of a provincial guarantee in the event of failure? Of well, the well, I asked him that. Oh, did you? I didn't yeah. hear that. Yeah. I did call in and talk to Dave about it. What did he say? He said no. So as far as his comments uh, go this morning... Like initially, in conversation with Minister Parsons and with John Risley, I've asked them both every time I had a chance to speak with them about provincial monies and provincial royalties and all those types of things. He says nothing's changed since the last time I asked that question. No provincial backstop, no provincial guarantee, uh, no provincial monies. And I even went down the road a little further, taking, I guess, reading between the lines what we heard from uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland last week when she met with the finance ministers, they did indeed establish funds for supporting projects like this. But she also said the provinces have to step up and play a role. No real expansion on it, but I did ask him that too, that multi-leveled question about, well, the Prime, Deputy Prime Minister is sort of saying that maybe the provinces have to do more. Has anything changed? He said no. All right, we'll see how that one goes. Well, I can only keep asking, right? I mean, oh, I know. I appreciate the fact that you did. Uh, the the uh, but it's good. We'll keep an eye on us. In the meantime, uh, last week the announcement and the two oil discoveries very very favourable for the province. We'll see now the attitude of Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Gibal when it comes to. Uh, federal approvals, which is another issue, but there's a long way between very favorable. There's a long way between what we heard last week and any even application for approval. Oh yeah, it? but I mean the fact is the oil is there, and we hope that in over a period of time, due process will take place, and it'll come down to a federal decision. And you know we may have to take the gloves off at that point, but we'll see. Uh, the main reason I, I called is the World Economic Forum. Uh, you're familiar with the World Economic Forum? Yep. And uh, fellows like uh, Klaus Schwab and Tony Blair and Bill Gates and Boris Johnson and Justin Trudeau and on and on it goes. And the whole question becomes, uh, given the global agenda of the World Economic Forum, how much influence is that group of people who are all wealthy world leaders or economic leaders uh, like Bill Gates, uh, how influential 
are they in achieving their goal, which basically is a global goal in order to refashion, pretty well refashion the world according to their belief as to what it should be. I don't think it's as great as they wish it would be. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, you know, look, I, I know there's a lot of attention given to the WEF. Yeah. And some of it I get, you know, the hypocrisy of telling me to clean up my green act while you fly your private jets. I mean, that stuff is the epitome of entitlement and hypocrisy. I completely understand that. Yeah. But the thought that they're taking the world over, I mean, from my view, I don't dismiss people's concerns. But if they, if it is what they say it is, whether it be from Klaus Schwab on down, it's the slowest moving coup in the history of man. I mean, this has been going around since 1971, right? And we've had conservatives and authoritarians and all kinds of people representing all kinds of political ideologies that have spoken at the, w, the WEF, participated in various conferences over the years. But yet, all of a sudden, I think there's a renewed focus. I think some of it has to do with the pandemic. I think that I, I understand people's genuine concerns here. But from where I sit, it's a collection of narcissistic, self-important blowhards as much as anything else. So <laughs> they want to hear themselves talk. They want to be patted on the back with their like-minded co colleagues, you know, over in Davos. So, yeah. you know, I don't think they're as influential as people think they are. And, you know, you mentioned the Trudeaus of the world and Boris Johnson on, up and down the line. I mean, it's not that long ago Stephen Harper spoke at the WEF. So yeah. I get the concerns, but we're kind of omitting a lot of what has actually happened over the course of time. And if their goals were as clear as some people tell me they are, boy, they're not very good at it because they've been doing this since 1971. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there, there's been other narcissistic leaders before the, this group who, uh, in time, who've all tried in one way or another to control how people live and what they eat and what they can drive and what they can't drive and how often they can turn their lights on and, and, and how many children they can have and on it goes, you know. And, and what has actually changed as a result of that? Not a whole lot? No, not, not to this point, anyhow. No. And, you know, uh, we, we should be as sovereign and responsible for our own direction and policies and programs and spending and forms of energy and all the rest of it. Some of it is actually following the leader. Like you talk about capital there's going to be a flow of capital that has changed direction from things related to fossil fuels to other opportunities out there. Why? Because that's where the money is starting to go. It's becoming harder and harder to finance all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, is that because of Klaus Schwab? I don't think so. I think the people in the money world are interested in making money. <laughs> and, they are. There's no doubt about and that. And wherever that might be, that's where they're going to uh, put their focus. And that, cha that has changed over time, as we all know to be true. So, yeah, I mean, I get the concerns people bring forward. But I think there's more self-importance than actual uh, clout that's brought from Klaus or anybody else. I'll give you the final word, Dennis. Yeah, I just wonder, too, uh, Tony Blair. Anybody ever try to dig into why it was that Tony Blair just dropped in? I, I think he might have been the only British prime minister since Winston Churchill. And Churchill didn't land in Newfoundland, but he was here with the Atlantic Charter. Yeah. So, Tony Blair flies in, apparently has a film crew with him, drops in to see uh, Premier Fury and leaves again. I think he invited himself. That's what I was told. I, uh, I'd say. Yeah, and you look around about the so-called consulting work where many people, I think, refer to Tony Blair as a war criminal. Uh, 
okay. So you look at this, the stuff he's doing. I mean, he's dragging around those film crews. Again, this is the essence of self-importance, right? So yeah. he's doing consulting work with levels of government, whether it be provincially, nationally, and I don't know what he actually has to offer, nor do I know if there was anything to it, but my understanding was he invited himself. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, I'll just leave it yeah, at that. Yeah, we need to keep uh, an eye on stuff, and sure. I'm glad you're doing it. And I just say to people in general here in the province, keep an eye on what's happening and speak out when when you feel you have to say something about it and call Paddy Daly or write a letter. Sure. Or, but do something, but just watch your back. Appreciate the time, Doc. Thanks, Eddie. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, in the environmental assessment world, I don't know if it's a whole lot different in this particular project than it would be offshore. I can get that clarified, you know, and I know who to ask those questions of, and not government, people in industry, but I don't really necessarily think it's as uh, as cut and dry as was just presented. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the ambulance services. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two, say good morning to the PC member for Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Loyola, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not bad, thank you. How about you? Good, good, sir. Patty, just calling on an issue or an incident that happened on uh, Thursday or Friday night last week in Cape Royal. A lady was an elderly lady at a bingo uh, that night and had an episode in the uh, town hall there and uh, called an ambulance and had to wait an hour and a half for an ambulance right there in Cape Royal with an ambulance sitting right there, no one in the home that uh, where the oper- ambulance operates and no one there to resource the oper- uh, ambulance. So, you know, just the disappointment in the government not being able to get someone to resource this ambulance is not only in Trapassi, it's the whole Southern Shore that, uh, you know, it's vital to have this ambulance service. And for a lady to have to wait an hour and a half, and uh, hopefully the result was good. But, you know, I was uh, in a restaurant on Thursday afternoon on my way back down, and, uh, you know, the lady that served me had told me her mom that was inside had an incident at the hall. And I was, wow. You know, she even came over and said it to me. You know, it hit me that, you know, they got a lot of worries on their mind. You never know when somebody leaves the house what's going to happen. And, you know, so for that to happen and the government, uh, you know, should be acting on this and getting an ambulance in the area. And uh, I've certainly spoke about it and called about it many times, spoke about it in the house. And the, the problem that I got in the area, and I called the minister's office last week, the problem I got is that there's people sitting in these homes in Cape Royal, Calvert, Fairland, Renew, is in the area, whichever is closest they're going to dispatch it. They're sitting there with a false sense of security, thinking that the ambulance is only five or ten minutes away while he's sitting there in the yard. I drove up two days last week. The ambulance is sitting there, not plugged in, and no one at the residence. So it's certainly a big concern in my district, Betty. Well, of course it is. It's a concern wherever we've got ambulance uh, issues. I know uh, Bob Fuhrer, when interviewed about this, you know, for instance, just in the Trapassi issue, you know, Mayor Pennell was on the understanding that, you know, in six months they were losing theirs. Bob Fuhrer says there will be an ambulance there until there's an alternative found. But when you say, you know, disappointed in the government here, what do you think the government can do on this front when there's only so many buses and so many paramedics or ambulance operators even available? I think we've got a shortage on all fronts. So what exactly do you think the government can do quickly on that front? The government is ultimately responsible for this, Paddy. I mean, they, yes, they Of course they are. I'm just asking for a specific yeah. what you think. Well, you know, they, 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 they got to react to it. They got to react to this. I mean, they said this ambulance issue has been going on since last year, negotiations, and they haven't got to it. And now look at the position we're in. So the government had been in on this, and, they, you know, they got to deal with the operators, obviously. But the government knew about this well in advance. 
and have nothing. You know, we go into the house uh, two or three weeks ago to do emergency for essential services. They knew that well in advance. And now they're waiting. And this is the kind of stuff that's going to happen. Hopefully it doesn't happen, you know, too often. But there's going to be something detrimental happening. And we don't need it to happen. That's the problem. We need to get at it. I call the office. They should be putting out some sort of announcement to say that the ambulance is in the area, but there's no one there to take care of it. You know, they they recognize it in Whitburn when the hospital is uh, closed. And, uh, you know, they put out a, yesterday or today, put it out for two weeks. Well, they should let the people of the area know it's ultimate that, if somebody's having a stroke, that they get to the hospital quick, and they may put that, take them and put them in a car and bring them to the hospital or meet them halfway. That's the importance. That's why I think the government is ultimately responsible to put that out to the people and let them know. That's that's where I stand on it, right? I think we would understand all of these issues uh, to a greater extent if we finally knew exactly what the plan was for ambulance service in the province, period. You know, for years we've been talking about the pending change here. Whether it be a multinational come in and take over the whole kit and caboodle, whether it be all in the public service, we don't know. We've all long been told that there are major changes coming to the structure of both ground and air ambulance service, but nothing's changed. So consequently, we've got the burnout and the numbers of paramedics leaving and the... uh, the tensions between employers and employees, both public and private sector in the ground ambulance business. So, you know, if even if it was, okay, it might not be the best idea, but let's just say uh, Giant Ambulance Company X is coming to town and every, very soon every single ambulance in the province will be operated by government, uh, by this private industry government, uh, pardon me, uh, Ambulance Company X. Okay, then let's figure out what that means and try to make sure that that's in the best interest of the people. But the way we currently have it, disjointed and disconnected, nothing's working. Totally, Paddy. I couldn't agree with you more. Totally. I mean, and it's not only my district, it's certainly across the island. And, you know, we looked at a report there since 2015. We're going to look at it. Now it's in the health accord. Well, it's time to get moving on that. And it's utmost importance is a safety issue. And that is the big one right now is a safety issue for the people of my district and I'm sure every district across the island in rural areas for sure. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Loyola. Thank you so much, Paddy. I do appreciate the time to do it. Thanks. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Uh, did I hit 45, Dave? Are you sure? Oh, we did. Okay. Well, that's probably very good, isn't it? I didn't think we did, though. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, let's go to line number three. Mel, you're on the air. Good morning. Hi, Mel. Uh, property taxes. Yep. And paying your bills. I have property in Mount Pearl, and under you can get your taxes deferred if you're Income is less than 40000 a year. Okay. But St. John's, if you, uh, if you worked, if you're not getting assistance some way, they won't look at you when, when it comes to getting your property taxes deferred. Yeah, I think there's only an opportunity for, and correct me if I'm wrong, there might be a, a discount for seniors maybe on property tax, but everything else, it's due when it's due. Oh, no, they don't look at seniors. You have to be... Okay. Don't matter how old you are. If you're not getting assistance some way, like a drug card and uh, social assistance or something like that, they won't even talk to you. So what were you looking for, for a deferral? Like a, a specific amount of time or, or what is the case? No, uh, like everything is going up, but a senior citizen 
is getting very little. Well, whatever you uh, got, uh, unless I don't know eight or ten years that I was working without a wage freeze. So since that time, the cost of living is after triple, and I suppose probably more than that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm not getting any more. Okay. It's only been taken. What bit I'm getting has been taken away by cost of living going up and property taxes going up. And so, uh, if there was some help, there's some way. Not only for me, but I guess there's more than me in this this situation. So, uh, like I, I've talked to the city about this before and uh, same thing, they haven't changed it but now it looks like Mount Pearl have and uh, Have you spoken with your councillor? No I never spoke with the councillor I spoke to the people down at City Hall and I've been down there and talked to them The reason I mentioned councillor because those types of considerations and potential changes would begin in council chambers and then, of course, the hard work done by the folks behind the scenes. That's the only reason I mentioned uh, speaking with your councillor. I don't even know who the councillor is. Well, you can contact one of the at-large councillors if that makes your life easier. Okay. So I was supposed to try. Why not? <laughs> it can't hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Mel. Okay, bye-bye. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, you know the deal. Topics up to you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let us go. I'll get the finger cue from David here now in a second. Okay, let's go to line number one. Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. You're listening to the audience. You too. Great program that you had this morning. Thanks. Uh, my comment uh, this morning, uh, I was reading the paper there, I think it was uh, sometime in December, when I think it was Robert uh, Reed uh, uh, built our Newfoundland Railway across Newfoundland. The French government, I think, instead of cash, uh, they paid him in form, they granted him a, a land. Uh, it was several, I, I believe it was. I know it's 500,000 or 5 million they mentioned in the paper. But now the Reeds now in their wisdom decided to uh, sell the land back to Newfoundland government. And if one, that money, I'm only remembering what I read in the paper here now. I think it was in December. In 1975, uh, Frank Moore's government purchased the land back from the Reeds uh, for $4.15 million. But the the agreement or the purchase only included the surface rights of the land. Now the the Reeds family still own the minerals below the surface of the land, which, if my my memory serves me correctly, I think the paper said it was the Reeds owned. I think it was in either five hundred thousand or five million. I'm not quite sure acres of land, Newfoundland. Now. Also, they mentioned uh, the val- uh, there's gold being uh, the gold. There's a company uh, there in in Valentine Lake, 
uh, here in Newfoundland. Uh, uh, they're um, uh, uh, mining for gold. It looks like a good promise of gold there in that area. That's, I guess, St. Valentine Lake, I think, in central Newfoundland. Yep. Now, uh, that mining company had to, uh, because of the uh, reeds owning the minerals under the land, uh, uh, some of that land obviously is in the area where this gold country, uh, company is now mining. So they had to pay the, the, the uh, reed company $7 million in cash and also put up shears for the Reed Company. So I guess my question is now, it sounds like that agreement in 1975 seems like it was a bit, I couldn't understand it. Now now, now that men was so, uh, it seems like certainly um, the minerals now in the world, I think, particularly if you have minerals that are what we never mined before. I think we have things here in Newfoundland now that because of the green energy, may be very profitable here in our... So I'm thinking now that should they not go back and, and revisit that agreement that Frank Morris uh, uh, agreed to in 1970? I think the deal is older than that, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, pardon me? I think that arrangement, that deal with the so-called reed lands, is much older than Frank Morris. Well, I know that they mentioned 19. I wrote. I think I made. I wrote. I wrote 1975. I made a few notes, but now uh, it says there 1975. I'm on. I'm on. It's in the paper, but I haven't. I'd have to revisit that uh, editorial in the paper. But I mean, that's an awful lot. A lot of uh, uh, minerals and. Uh, a lot of land. I think they mentioned five, five million acres. Yeah, I think that. I think the reed lands date back over a century, if I remember. Oh, yes. I'd have to go ahead. And, oh yes, oh, it goes my. back. Yes, it goes back at the beginning, when they when they completed the, uh, the railway, because I think if I remember correctly, I think uh, there's another article I think I read many years ago, showing that time our, again our provincial government was trapped for cash. And Mr. Reed, a very accomplished uh, engineer, uh, agreed to finish the, the railway for for for. They they offered him land, actually. So it was an awful lot of land that they granted to him. And now, of course, but I, I my un, but it's kind of strange that who would ever negotiate, you know, just the surface of the land, but not the minerals. You know what I mean? Yeah, because they're doing different things, uh, and distinctly different. So all the most of the value I was in the middle of but now this gold company had to turn around and pay the reeds uh, seventy million plus the fact they had to put up shears for the the reed company. So I mean, talk about giving away our our province or resources. I mean that is, I mean to me that's ridiculous. You know, can't we go back and renegotiate and take that land back and the minerals? I don't know. It's a good question. I, I read an article about this, and I'm, I'm going to guess it was uh, uh, Atlantic Business Magazine, and I'm sure I can find that online to give myself a little refresher about the issue, because it is interesting. Very, and the well, family still much, continues it's, to it's, make millions of dollars. It's more than interesting. I think it's vital to our, our economy and our survival, you know? All that land that they own on the, the, with, with the minerals, and now this gold company is uh, mining, and obviously it uh, looks like a very promising uh, gold uh, resource there, and probably other minerals now. And now, of course, they're looking at uh, minerals uh, uh, because of the uh, 
the green energy. And I think one of the minerals now for making our batteries for electric cars, I can't remember what it is, but it's, I think Newfoundland has that, has that mineral. I don't know if it exists under those lands. That, uh, I don't know. Read I'll read that story for a little refresher. Vic, I appreciate the time. But anyway, and I thank you for your time. Have no, a no. nice day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye now. Uh, let's keep going here. Line number two, say good morning to the interim leader, the NDP. That's the, and he's also the member for St. John's Centre. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. I just want to comment on, um, well, the the, it, home, the issue around the bus shelter, housing, homelessness. Do you know what there? I've, I've spoken to you about this before. There are issues that are of concern for me, but I'll start with this. Uh, you might remember last week, I know uh, Shirley Cox, the lady who uh, was evicted. We uh, some good news in that we uh, were in working with. Uh, Connections for Seniors and New Flannel Labrador Housing, we actually have her now in a home, uh, her own home. She went from the uh, being evicted from St. John's Housing to uh, shelter, and uh, we now have her on her way to uh, into a permanent home uh, that uh, she can call her own. So it's not the care home out in Conception Bay that she thought she no, might be moving to? No, no, no. This is actually a home. Uh, we have an apartment uh, arranged for her, so, uh, you know, it's it, that's that's the uh, the good news i guess if there was uh, if there's any good news out of that uh, that whole situation last week that's for sure and that's after months of working and trying in, and and looking to uh, get cooperation from the city on this one and i guess this is where i'm going I, i've got before uh, we go any further jim yep. before we go any further yeah did you read Anne Malone's piece? Because this is bigger than Charlie Cox. And I mean, as much as we can indeed be talking about Ms. Cox's predicament and engagement with the city, now, whether it be other seniors or other disabled peoples, and what this might bring so far as a shock to their system, thinking, well, it could be me. And the future is so uncertain I for agree. many people in that, those categories, period, that this story has emanated well beyond simply Ms. Cox and her friends and supporters. Oh, listen, I agree. And, and to me, uh, I think the, the most troubling aspect of this is that since October, I, I, I know my office connections for, connections for seniors as well. We've been more or less. What is the reason? And we suspect it's to do with uh, disability and the uh, age. We were uh, we were never uh, given that opportunity. Even though as our MHA, I have the uh, I have a written authorization to speak on her behalf and to get information. We never had that opportunity to uh, to discuss it. And, uh, and 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 actually, surely based on the information we see, she is probably probably the only person in the last four years who was evicted without cause. So I think, you know, to me, it's a significant issue. And it's a, it's about, I, 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 I try to keep this in mind, you put people first at all times, and you look at the, those who are vulnerable and don't have the means and the wherewithal, and how do you make sure that, uh, especially seniors uh, who are, uh, if, if, they're, if they're financially uh, disadvantaged, they're going to have a tougher time as well. So to me, uh, what Anne Am- Malone says hits the nail on the head. It's a, it's a concern. Uh, and I, I guess what I'm looking at, here we have another story about bus shelters and then and, and the removal of two bus shelters. And the fact even more disturbing about this is that for, uh, for pe- people who can't access shelter, the bus shelters becomes the shelter. And... I can't help but think, you know, in many ways, I look at the uh, the, the outrage I'm hearing from uh, the, the city on, uh, you know, uh, uh, on, on this far outstrips the outrage of removing uh, a, a, 
a lady in a wheelchair last week, and we should have been making every every effort to keep her housed. Ne- nevertheless, that's that that's uh, that that's that issue and and this. But here's the thing. We're, we're focused on shelters. No one should have been out in this weather this weekend. We should have been doing everything to make sure that uh, people are housed. And I think at some point, and I've said this before in your show, we've got to start looking at as, uh, as, not only the short term, but in terms of long-term affordable and supportive housing in, in terms of, uh, of keeping people housed. It was only last summer that I was the first time in my uh, role as NDP, the uh, MHA, that I was helping people who chose to live in the park, Pippi Park, because they, they did not want to go into the shelter system. It was too safe. I think in many ways, Patty, at some point, and, and I've heard other organizations say this, but it's, we've got to start looking at eliminating the need for shelters, and that that's basically comes down to how do we keep people housed. I, I was with St. Vincent de Paul for a good 30 years. Uh, it's a not-for-profit, and one of the things we, did, we we realized when we went into a lot of the homes we would deliver hampers to is the un, unconscionable uh, living conditions. So it, it it more or less galvanized us into uh, building a building, constructing our own a small affordable housing project. And it's about, it's about dignity. And at that time, it's interesting. We had a gentleman down from the uh, oh, from the mainland, and uh, Daniel Cullen was his name, and he was a speaker. But he was spent 25 years on the street. And I remember the one thing that said he said that stood out. He said, from the time he decided to get off the street, he made the decision, this is going to kill me. I got to get off. To the time he actually got off, it was five years. It was a it was a, uh, it was a process. And I, 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 that stuck in our head because for the people who are who are finding themselves homeless, there are other issues at play there that we've got to address as well. I know yeah. when I was when I was first elected, and I and I'll keep at this the Grace General Hospital site. I, I went and started looking at how do we use the nurses' residence or that site to construct affordable housing there, mixed-use housing, but something there so that people, all people, can have uh, access to a, a, a warm, safe, secure place that they can live in. Is that even possible? I mean, wouldn't those quarters, I mean, even the cost for abatements and for the remediation, I mean, that feels like a teardown. That feels like real estate to be built on, not to renovate. Oh no, and I agree. When I look, when I first went there, I, I was looking at how to, the, the building, and, and how could we use, convert that building into something like this? And I, the words at the time, they said, "Well, that would have worked ten years ago." Uh, you know, at that, 2019, so to, let's say 2000, they had started, but the building's at the stage where it needs to be uh, torn down. Yeah. However, there is land there, publicly, uh, government-owned land, that could be used for that. Instead of putting up high-end condominiums, what I think somewhere along the line. Most of the people I'm, I, I, I'm trying to help with housing, seniors, uh, those who are on fixed incomes, those who are on income support, you name those who are working minimum wage jobs, are looking for uh, something that uh, that they can afford to live in and that they can have some security. And we've met with a very variety of groups. So I think you're right, Patty. The, uh, the, probably the only th- sad to say is that because of the delay in, in looking at how to use it, the only thing that can be done with that hospital uh, that that the nurse residence is torn is to be torn down, but still there's land there. Now, what are we going to use it for? And I think this weekend, I mean, we had cold temperatures, but nowhere near as cold as other parts of the province. Um, 
at some point, how do you keep vulnerable people from freezing to death? How do you keep people from sleeping in a car in a parking garage somewhere because they can't get into a shelter, can't take their their pets with them? Um, and and make sure that people are not not uh, now now lamenting the loss of a a bus shelter because in many cases that could be a shelter for people so somewhere along the line we've got to start looking at how do we put people first and what's the investment we need to reduce the level of homelessness the fact that a bus shelter was the only protection from the elements is a real mouthful it's a real reflection yep. on how just how dismal the country does on this particular issue. The announcement by the federal liberals there, late 21, early 22, regarding affordable housing, there was some, I believe, 10,000 units was part of that package. There's been somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 to 1,600, somewhere in there that have been constructed. So that can go a long way if that gets satisfied sooner than later. And the whole housing issue, I mean, if people don't think we're at a crisis on that front, it's, it's simply because they're not looking around and seeing just how precarious things are for so many people. We can use the home numbers all we want, but they're not reflective of true homelessness. How many people are a check away from being in that circumstance? How many people are simply surfing couches with, in essence, that's no home security. That's that's not that's not having a safe place to live. That's just being lucky you have a, a pillar to put your head on. No more, no less. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Jim, and I think things like the Grace, same thing when we saw McPherson house, uh, School sold and stuff. The folks who bought it for a song is because they had a remediation company, <laughs> so they could take it on the chin, create some value in one company to then move on to the next stage of development because I would imagine the reason that still stands is the province is worried or knows much more than they tell us about with just what's in there and how brutal it is and how much it's going to cost. No, but invest in people. Look, and, yeah, I get and I'll it. say the last, very last good, quick thing in this. There's a federal money, the National Housing Strategy, back-end loaded. Uh, you know what? Start releasing that money now in the prov- province here and start addressing this and reduce the number of people who have to rely on emergency shelters. That's when we'll start to see some real progress. And the people who are couch surfing, the people who are just a paycheck away, all of these things. But you're, And you hit the nail on the head with that. Many people out there are just a paycheck away from being in this situation. Uh, I appreciate the time. Thanks, Jim. You're welcome. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. It's Jim Din. He's the NDP member for St. John's Centre and the interim leader. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number four, Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How morning. are you this morning? Okay, you? Uh, good. Thank you. Very interesting show again, Patty. Thanks. I, I, I'm on again. I know I've been on there often, but, Patty, I got concerns, and hopefully that's okay to bring it forward. Uh, Patty, uh, one thing we're talking about now is uh, a couple things I want to mention. I'm going to make it quick. Uh, the Skidavac Medivac system uh, for taking around patients that's not exactly emergencies, like the gentleman last week was on your open line show that flew out of Lab West, and uh, that's a wonderful that's a wonderful thing. We, uh, our air ambulance committee, uh, uh, supported that uh, for what three or four years now. And we, we do believe it's one of our things. Now, we know the air ambulance is busy. I was just in checking them. We got four air ambulances going flat out pretty well. I don't know about flat out, but fairly busy, like so far today. Now, Deer Lake, Santony, Gander, or, you know, Goose Bay. So, yeah, they're busy, but uh, that would be great if we could get that system in place. Um, and I did hear the MHA from Lab West saying that it's a concern because it takes the nurse from the hospital, which is could be true. It uh, would be true if it's an emergency, but a lot of these cases is not emergencies. So like like the road ambulance, they wouldn't have to take the nurses from the hospital. 
You know, you understand what I'm saying, Patty? Yeah, I mean, that's the concern. I mean, Jordan Brown voiced it from yeah. his writing up in Lab West, and I assume that would be a similar concern where there are, is uh, shortages of nurses, but that does that includes everywhere. It includes yeah. the capital city, so I get that point. You know, I don't know if there's a perfect uh, policy can be put forward there for fly-in and fly-out. Certainly the patients that get the help quicker than they normally would, get them out of a hospital bed or out of an acute care bed, get the dye test, see where they go next for the treatment. I'm sure they're appreciative of this approach. Is it the absolute best thing since sliced bread, given the fact that a nurse will be part of the, the commute? I think there's a conversation to be had there. The extreme, of course, is when we use Lab West as an example, as opposed to if you're being flown in from Grand Falls or from Gander or from Deer Lake. But I, I get it. I know, I know, Patty, like when there's emergencies at a Fogo Island, that uh, there's times we have to take the nurse because of the particular case at the time. But there is, uh, there's lots of times that there's no nurse on board. So that same thing could apply to air ambulance. So we're open that that system is going to be used more because, like that gentleman was saying, it was excellent for him, and I'm sure it will be excellent for a lot of people. The other issue I want to talk about, and I'm going to make it quick, is the, the doctor that's coming to Fogwell in April. Yep. Well, thank God, looks like that's going to happen. It was on, the, on your news and it was on the NTV news yesterday evening. Uh, there's concern about her clients uh, that's, that seemed in town. And, and that's understandable because we just went through that with Dr. Tarek when he left there after 10, 12 years, my, my family doctor, and, uh, you know, he made a decision to go to Edmonton. So that doctor is making a decision to come to Fogo Island. So we can't really hold that down on the doctor because they can go pretty well wherever they want to if they got a license to do so. Like, like but who's doing that, though? I was saying on your, on your radio this morning. Yeah, but who, who's giving the doctor a hard time? What's that? Who's giving the doctor a hard time? No, no, but what they're saying is in the news, like the doctors coming to Fuguan and leaving their patients without a doctor in St. John's. Well, I want to give you an example. I was in St. John's last week with my brother, and he had to go to get some meds updated because we had no doctor on Fuguan, and he just went to a walk-in. You can't go to a walk-in on Fuguan. We just went to a case there a week with no doctor, over 60 kilometers of wind, no ferry, no air ambulance. Uh, it, it's terrible. So, I mean, it's a different case. And I'm not not just, you know, degrading the, the town or anything like that, because I spend a lot of time in St. John's myself, and it's a wonderful spot. But, listen, that doctor made a decision to come to Fogo Island. And like Minister Osmond, if he's telling the truth, there's no incentives given to her. So we got to let it be. And that person, these people that's going to that doctor got an alternative. On Fogo Island, we don't have an alternative. We don't have a walking. So you understand where I'm coming from? Not really. What do you mean by that? Well, if 2,700 people who had a family doctor no longer have one, why wouldn't that be a concern for 2,700 people? Because, Patty, if they got to, for meds, if I got to go and get my meds renewed... Yes, I know they can go to the emergency room. I can't get it renewed. I know they can go to the emergency room. I know they can go to a drop-in clinic, but it's not the same as having a family doctor. I think they're making a big issue out of nothing, myself, because that doctor made a decision to come to Fogo Island, and you know what? I hope to God she don't listen to the people and, and stay away, because we need a doctor here really bad. We don't have a walk-in on Fogo Island. They do in St. John's more than one, too. <laughs> okay, Patty, thank you okay. for your time. I really appreciate it. I want to get on and voice my concern, and, uh, and uh, I, I really appreciate VOCM giving me the chance to do that for the people of Fogo Island and the public. Thank you, Eugene. Have a nice day, sir. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone's given the doctor a hard time. Doctors can do as they see fit insofar as where they like to work and live and practice. I, I don't think I've heard anything different from that. I mean, this doctor maybe sees a great opportunity to wind down not only her years uh, in practice, 
but also maybe set up shop in a uh, more remote, beautiful, quieter part of the province than she currently lives in. <laughs> or something along those lines. Uh, I'm going to take Lillian before we go to the news. Line five, Lillian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. I'm phoning because I lost my car keys Saturday. Where were you? I was in Maurice and Black Marsh Road. I went in to do a few things I had to do, and I laid them down. And when I went out car, I realized I never had them. I went back in to get them and couldn't find them. And they were gone quick as that? Yes. I think I think there was a gentleman behind me. I think he might have picked them up by mistake, realizing that he's cased. And when he got home, I guess he never looked his check his pockets or whatever after. So I never got him back. Okay, when was this? This was Saturday afternoon between 1 and 3 o'clock. Okay, Black Marsh Road, Marie's. If you did indeed, if you were a shopper there between those hours on Saturday afternoon, maybe check your coat pockets and you maybe inadvertently picked up Lillian's keys. So the car's still out by Marie's or you went home and got your spares? No, I had the spear. You had it on you? Yeah, I had my spear in my purse. Oh, very good. Yeah, because when I went in, my car was locked anyway, so I had to need my key to unlock the car because it's keyless. It's a keyless car. Oh, I get it. Okay. So the the plea is out there that if you have those keys belong to Lillian, you want them to bring them back to Marie's for you, or what do you want to do? Oh, they can bring them back to Marie's, or they can phone me. Okay, what's your number? Three three zero six two five two. Three three zero six two five two. Hmm. Okay, Lillian lost keys. I'll make a note here. Lillian lost keys. Okay, good luck. Let me know what happens. I will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, uh, is that, uh, okay, let's go ahead and uh, take a break for the newscast. And when we come back, there's a gentleman calling from Port of Port regarding the proposal for World Energy GH2, and then we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Talk away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Daryl Shelley. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. It's nice to hear your voice again. Thanks for having me on again. No problem. So I'm actually calling from Stephen, well, not Port-a-Port, but I am the spokesperson for the Environmental Transparency Committee on the Port-a-Port Peninsula. And uh, we have been following the protests out there carefully and also what John Reesley was saying earlier today. So I'm calling in to address and uh, clarify some of the things that have been uh, going on out there and what Mr. Reesley has been claiming, which... Uh, is partly fact and partly false. Such as? Well, he did say there's a dozen people down there against the project, which is completely false. Um, we we released a poll uh, a few months back saying that 84% of the people were against the project. There's over 1,000 people polled, and they were polled door-to-door by local service districts and local community leaders. So I've got, I, I was actually up, it's ironic that I got this call to call you today from them. I... Uh, literally was up all night from four o'clock in the morning till now it took me seven hours to scan the documents i've got 584 individual documents that i'm going to email you after this phone call so you can verify the legitimacy of that poll yourself yeah i mean and mr risley says they have a poll so i mean i don't know how many people are in or out or up or down on this particular one i'm not so sure that there's a whole lot that matters about whether it's 12 or 120 or 1200 i don't know i guess the issues don't aren't diminished or intensified with these types of polls do you think 
Well, I mean, general poll, a poll just came out recently about how the Canadian public was over 60% not satisfied with our current federal government, and they only polled 1,500 people. We polled almost 1,100 people on this poll, and Reesley's poll from uh, the business luncheon that I attended back in October stated they only polled 150 people. So we've got 10 to, almost 10 times the size of the amount of people to pull from for a for a base to to argue that poll, and I think that our poll is a lot more legitimate. That's why I've scanned the documents in so that I can present them to persons in the media like yourself sure. have them fact-checked, you know? Yeah, I'm happy to take a look when you send it along. No sweat. So that, that's one thing, you know, whose poll is accurate, whose poll is more reflective of the mood in the area. Fair ball. I'll have a look at both polls. And, you know, even the one you referenced about the whole bit is Canada broken, <laughs> that kind of stuff. There's a reason I don't talk about polls on, on the show very much, because snapshots in time don't really tell the tale for the vast majority of people living in the country. So there's a reason why I just kind of leave that aside. I, I have a look at them every single time just for my my own information and to see where people are potentially leaning in one select group of people or another but fair enough but other than the polling numbers uh what else did mr risley say today that has you wanting to rebut what you heard well i mean another thing too the the, the people protesting out there they're not tied into any specific group i mean we support them the local service district support them but these are grassroots they're going on mainland over 20 days now and Piccadilly's another community where they're going up on two weeks. The opposition is mounting daily, and there's even people talking about the Beothic ancestry out there right now and starting to pull up some of that stuff. So it's mounting from many different angles. There's organized groups and there's local service districts, but the people, everybody together, what they want to do is stop the project. Now, I've seen a CBC piece a couple of weeks ago where they came out and said it was about the water issues in mainland. It's not just about the water issues. Uh, we got the entire um, interviews recorded that, that took place. And, of course, they're edited to to talk about the water issues and highlight that. But the reason that people are out there is to stop the project full stop. Everybody wants to stop the project. That's that's the majority, what more than the majority wants. And uh, it seems to be downplayed by these groups, Mike Reasley. And uh, sometimes the media is not representing it correctly. It's, it's a huge amount of people from all different walks of life, and they just want it stopped. On the water one, so I asked uh, John Risley that directly today. He says that the water issues predate the work on site. He also said that he has offered, the company is offering professionals in that world of water safety, water uh, testing, engineers and others to uh, free of charge to the locals to be sent on site to do more evaluations. And apparently no one's taken them up on it. Why wouldn't that be a good idea to take something free where people who are actually qualified to do any testing and evaluation? environmental assessments why won't why wasn't your group interested in that that would sound like a good idea well it wasn't my group particularly protesting like i said it's a, it's it's grassroots locals in each community volunteers in each community that have been helping each other yes we've been down there and i've been down there a couple of times myself and to bring them coffee and hot chocolate and food and whatnot to help them out but to be honest with you it's carpet before the horse what happens when it's after the water issue, it becomes some other issue, it becomes a hunting issue, it becomes an issue with the roads, it becomes an issue with the wildlife getting hurt, it becomes an issue with the with the bog and the groundwater and it and, and the next community over. It's not just about one community and one water issue. It's about trying to send a message to John Reesley and his team that they will not be able to get these turbines put up in the Port of Port Peninsula and they certainly won't be able to do it with any opposition, which the opposition has been mounting and is gonna get a lot worse before they're gonna uh 
let anything happen out there if they ever let anything happen at all. I think they're just trying to send a message that full stop, we just don't want you out here on the Port of Port Peninsula and that's it. Wouldn't it be also possible to take things one one step at a time? Fauna and flora, wildlife and birds and water and eyesore and proximity to residences and all those things. Can you, you know, there's only one way to eat an elephant, and that's one bite at a time. Would it not be a good start to figure out the water? Because that seems to be a really legitimate concern that people have is what happens to the water? And, you know, whether it be access to water to uh, for the hydrogen plant, the ammonia plant, what have you, but also just this potential for drinking water to be compromised in mainland. Wouldn't that be a good start anyway to get someone in there? So then you actually have uh, a basis point to look at the pop- the possibility for other water-related issues to rear their head. And then maybe, just maybe, uh, inside the environmental assessment, if there's other legitimate concerns where someone else can foot the bill for independent evaluation, wouldn't that all be helpful in collection to put yeah. more and more horsepower behind your opposition to the project? Of course, uh, and I mean, that's where the environmental impact study and environmental assessment comes in from the government and, of course, all the, the, the required documents and what the people out there had assumed is that the company would play by the rules that the government had set out. And I think the people in the area were, especially the ones on the fence, were willing to give the benefit of the doubt at the beginning. Now, the companies come in there with no permits. They've been caught red-handed several times. They've been given fines. The Department of Forestry has told us and told people on our committee that they never had permits and they've been out there trying to put up net towers. Uh, widening roads and doing and cutting down timber and now contaminating water supplies. I mean, if they, if they wanted to play by the rules and they wanted to do a, an environmental assessment properly, look at the flora and the fauna and the wildlife and the possibilities that will affect the watershed, they should be at least playing by the rules that all the other proponents are supposed to play by, shouldn't they? Everyone should play by whatever established rules that are in the best interest of the people and the environment. Absolutely. I don't think anyone can argue that. On that front, also asked him specifically about that. He said it's Crown Land and had to get permissions from Crown Lands, and that was granted to him as per the rules regarding the usage and the uh, work to be done on Crown Lands. So is that not the case as you, as you understand it? I'm not sure where it stands right now. I know when he first started, they didn't have the permits and they were given a fine. That was uh, well over a month or two ago at this point. But I know that he's, he's up there putting up measurement towers, yeah. wind measurement towers. And he keeps saying that Western Newfoundland has the best wind profile. And I continue to ask all the, the mayors in the, in the area and the people that support it, some of them do, uh, where's the study about the, the, the wind turbines being, being best placed in Western Newfoundland? I don't understand it. I have a study from Memorial University from the Department of, of Engineering, you can Google it, it's called the Wind Energy Resource Map of Newfoundland from 2003, and it, it lists Western Newfoundland as one of the worst places for wind energy or potential wind energy in the province, and uh, Buren Peninsula and Eastern Newfoundland, Northern Peninsula are all better spots to be putting it, so why is it, where's their study, where's this coming from, it's all coming from the company's propaganda, I want to know where their study is, where's Western Newfoundland's magical wind study, I want to see it. Isn't that what the tower is set to... Uh, verify or validate? That's part of what they're supposed to validate, but why would they be putting a Met Tower there and mentioning a $12 billion investment cart before the horse again? So what is it that they really want to do out there? They're coming out and saying, we're going to put $12 billion into the magical wind in port port Peninsula. Wait now, we still need to go out and measure the wind first, and we'll do it without permits? Sounds a little questionable. Yeah, I mean, the business case, uh, you know, 
if there is no provincial money, which we also asked Mr. Risley about this morning, then whether or not this works ultimately, and I don't know if it's ever going to get greenlit, I don't know if it's ever going to happen, I don't think anybody really knows at this stage, but whether or not green hydrogen is real or a scam or there's a business model that's going to be profitable, that's kind of between Risley and, and the Germans, as far as I can tell. So you're saying that people are going to do whatever it takes to ensure this project does not happen. Do you have any examples as to what that means? Now, exactly. I mean, it, it's it's volunteer groups. I mean, we have the Environmental Transparency Committee. We have more than half the LSDs out there uh, and volunteers conducting surveys door to door. And then there's grassroots people setting up protests to stop the work. And then there's people online now that have set up websites and started to expose some of the people that have been involved here. One of them is this Matt Sekula person who all of a sudden just showed up as part of Risley's security entourage. He's a gentleman who was out there, I guess you could say, questioning, if not borderline harassing the locals on mainland and Piccadilly on the Port of War Peninsula last week. And uh, we looked him up on his LinkedIn profile on his website. He's been trained with the Navy SEALs, Delta Force, Army Rangers, LAPD. This guy's been all over the North America. He's from BC. Um, and uh, he's got this company that specializes in uh, it, it called uh, Tactical Operations. And we've checked his website, and his website seems to be down now that people are calling him out. So, I mean, is this the kind of heavy artillery they need to send there? This this guy from Tactical Synergy, who's a retired police officer, uh, is this what they need to send out there in order to stop these people who are uh, peacefully protesting on the Portable Peninsula? It's kind of ridiculous. I wasn't aware of that particular person's background. I'm not going to be surprised that someone with uh, John Risley's resources would hire someone like that, but that does sound like bringing a, bringing a pretty big weapon to a pretty contained spat at this moment in time. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Daryl? I uh, just wanted to address the uh, vandalism issue that I know what some people had spoken about. Listen, from uh, our point of view, we don't know how that happened or who did it, but there are two things about it that brought up some suspicion to me when I personally looked into it. One was the photos that were taken uh, about the smashed window in the pickup truck and the keys were inside the truck. To me, that doesn't make any sense why someone would place their keys on their dash or their truck and then take the picture. Um, the other side of it was something about the side-by-side that was stolen, and I recently we found out that the person who stole that side-by-side slash ATV was a cousin related to the person who was renting the property to the company and that that person is a juvenile who's been charged by the RCMP and has nothing to do with the protesters, the Environmental Transparency Committee, or any of the town districts. So it looks like it was a couple of kids pulling a prank at that point. And for Reasley and them to even insinuate that it could be respectful locals is a slap in the face and very disrespectful, and we really don't appreciate it. Where does that information come from regarding charges have been laid and these people have been identified? Um, I just on the the person who stole the ATV. I don't know about the smashed windows or that was on a different location, but it was the same, uh, all in the same press release from the RCMP himself. And uh, I had I heard that from members of the uh, ETC today, and they called me and said that uh, somebody was charged. And I could give you his name, but I don't think it would be appropriate. Over no, of course not. I'll just get the RCMP to confirm it because they'll be happy to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So so they stole an ATV. They did charge somebody. The rest of the vandalism, I have no. Idea idea where that stands right now, but I know it's nothing to do with the protesters or the, the people that are lobbying against the uh, the project, which, uh, as you know right now, it's uh, going to be devastating for the people on Port Port Peninsula. If Mr. Reasley wants to move it somewhere else outside the Port of Port Peninsula in a non-populated area, all the power to him. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Daryl. Thanks, Patty. Take, Take care. Bye-bye. Daryl Shelley with the Environmental Transparency Committee.
out on the, well, I guess he said he's calling from Stephenville, but of course we all know the proposal and the area that we're talking about this morning. Final break of the morning. When we come back, still got time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one. Greg, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, just wanted to uh, touch base with you, Petty. I've, uh, I've had some problems with my uh, telecommunications provider, Rogers. Um, been without service since the 27th of January and uh, can't seem to get uh, any response as to when or uh, if I'll get services back. I'm assuming I will at some point, but uh, I'm just kind of stuck in limbo. And uh, I'm a person that works away, so I only spend about two weeks out of the six weeks at home. And I've had to run around for medical, like virtual appointments and all that kind of stuff because, again, I can't do anything from the house. So, uh, a little bit frustrated, and I, I don't know if it affects uh, many other people, so I just wanted to throw it out there and see if any of your listeners were having the same experience or had any knowledge on this uh, outage. Well, I'm not aware of that particular outage, but I, not surprisingly, we hear concerns regarding uh, the reliability of telecommunications and the amount of money we pay for it. And so whether it be the dead spots or the unreliable service and paying a bill for a product or a service you did not receive, I hear it all the time. Yeah, so that's where I'm at now. I've, I've, I've had poor service for the last 12 months, had uh, a pretty significant uh, credit, uh, which has since expired. And then uh, they had installed this new GPON uh, system is what it's called. So that's the, the latest and greatest and was supposed to be the answer to all my prayers. And uh, like I said, they can't provision the equipment. So I have new, I got new equipment down there. Uh, it shows that, you know, I've, I've had the signal measured. Everything is good. It's just something, whatever happened on that outage last Saturday, my account, uh, they've had to cancel it and then try and rebuild it. And that's where I'm, that's where I'm at right now. Actually, I'm waiting to hear back from hopefully the office of the president at some point today and see if, they can shed some light because every every day at twelve forty eight, I get a text saying, uh, you know, they're still working hard at it, but uh, nothing from a human. And uh, you know, again, as I said, no uh, no end in sight that uh, I'm aware of. Let me know if you get uh, an update from someone who actually is speaking with you, as opposed to a robot or a text. Yeah, I'll certainly do that. Do that, Greg. Keep me in the loop. Will do. Thank Thanks you. So much. Take care. Bye bye. Yeah, those are that's frustrating stuff. Uh, line number two, last word, caller. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Um, I don't know if it's a question or 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 what. You make of it as you like. Okay. Um, people up on the southern shore, there's a wind farm up there. Yep. There were studies done. They live near this. Do they have complaints? Not like this. So what is what would the big difference be? Well, I think some of it's probably based on scale. I mean, 164 of these things is certainly different than what is uh, already in existence on the southern shore. So I'm just guessing that that's part of it and why we're hearing more about it. I, I think there's also some mistrust of people like John Risley in different parts of the province, to be honest with you. Then you add in the fact that the project here is the first of its kind uh, in the country, if not the world, with ammonia and green hydrogen and all that kind of stuff and access to public water. So I think there's just a different scope and scale of this project, which has brought upon a lot of the concerns we hear. And then, of course, it's also going to be part and parcel with people just don't want it where they live. They don't care if it's somewhere else. They just don't want it where they are. Okay, and and as far as the noise pollution goes, do the people up the shore get any noise from these? 
No, and technology has changed. Even uh, municipal leaders from that area, they visited a major wind farm in Ontario and reported back that they their concerns regarding noise are now no longer concerns. That's what they said. I wasn't there, but that's what they said. Okay. So I'd, I'd just like to hear from somebody up the shore that... that have they got any complaints? I know people in the area. I can send off a few notes uh, and see if they want to come on. Uh, but I do believe this is more about the scope and the scale of the project than it is simply about a turbine. Or how many turbines are in that wind farm up the shore? Uh, I would say there's over 10. Yeah, I was going to guess there was 8 to 12. So fair yeah. enough. I'll see if anyone in the area wants to come on because I do know folks that live very close by, to be honest. And is it the project or is it just the person? It's part of, I think it's probably both. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That that's that's the problem. Yeah, it it certainly plays a role, and I I bet you John Risley knows that too. Uh, I appreciate the call and the suggestion. I'll see what I can do insofar as the caller for tomorrow goes. Thanks. You're welcome. All right, bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, there we go. Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.